Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? Boy, do I. The helpful folks at State Farm do too. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home, making off with your new flat screen TV, and you need that to study up on Count Dooku. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Don't be afraid. I'm not afraid to die. I've been dying a little bit each day since you came back into my life. What are you talking about? The adult content. The adult content? I thought Obi-Wan had agreed to warn listeners that Binge Mode contains it. And that it also contains spoilers for the entire Star Wars saga to date. I think our lives are about to be destroyed anyway. I truly, deeply love podcasting with you. And before we die, I want you to know that it's time for Binge Mode. Where is your apprentice? On his way to Naboo, escorting Senator Amidala home. I have to admit that without the clones, it would not have been a victory. Victory? Victory, you say? Master Obi-Wan, not victory. The Shroud of the Dark Side has fallen. Begun. The Clone War has. Binge Mode Star Wars. Woo! Proudly. Part of the Ringer Podcast Network. What an incredible network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! Firmly within the galaxy, within the Republic, and a great website. Joining me today. Now that he's finished exalting the virtues of Naboo's sandless landscape. Roll down a hill with me. It's Ringer Senior Creative, your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. Mel. I don't like sand. I know. It's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere. I know, you're always talking about it. Not like binge mode Star Wars, which is soft and smooth like Palo, where we're exploring the Skywalker saga films and the anthology films and numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away from character studies on iconic Star Wars archetypes to discussions of the Mandalorian. Yeah. The chats about comics and merch, and iconography and more, all leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker on December 20th. Please fight the separatists with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you and the techno union get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us those five-star ratings or Anakin will slaughter the Tuscans, man, woman, and child alike. The blood is on your hands if you do not give us a five-star rating. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Midge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to share your thoughts on how to navigate the weather on Camino. Spoiler, it's always raining. 
And please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our brand new binge bone merch. Yeah. Nice and durable for battling Django in the elements. Man, Django. What a dick. Today, we're diving deep. Deep. Like Anakin into Padme by the Lake of Naboo. Into 2002's Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. As always, spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from not only this film, but the entire Star Wars saga to date, taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So say goodbye to your right hand. A whole arm, really. I mean, it it's is. a lot of it. It's a good chunk of it's the arm. It's a good chunk of the arm. Because it's time to head to Geonosis. Mal, please don't look at me like that. Why not? It makes me feel uncomfortable. And we have plot points to get to. And I'm a senator. <laughs> among other things. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Attack of the Clones by heading to a podcast studio far, far away and queuing up the opening crawl. A long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away. Political crisis! <laughs> <laughs> Political inertia and the fecklessness of the Senate are leading planetary systems to secede from the Republic. With so many hotspots around the galaxy, the Jedi Knights are stretched to the breaking point, and let's be honest, even when they're concentrated, they're not doing so great. Not the sharpest <laughs> lightsabers in the shed. What could I say? In order to secure the galaxy, a motion to form a grand army of the Republic is brought before the Senate. Senator Padme Amidala arrives on Coruscant for the momentous vote and immediately becomes a target of an assassination attempt. R.I.P. to Corday. Corday, very, very no! tough. Corday, no! Later in Chancellor Palpy's office, mm. Mace Windu suggests that Jedi intelligence, an oxymoron, <laughs> <laughs> posits that disgruntled Nabooian miners were behind the attack. Padme suggests... Hey, what about that ex-Jedi, Count Dooku, currently working with the Separatists? The Jedi are like, ah, no way. Help me Couldn't suggest- be. Could not be Couldn't him. Be. <laughs> Palpy suggests placing Padme under Obi-Wan and his Padawan Anakin's protection, which means Anakin creep vibes engage. <laughs> Maybe Count oh Dooku, the leader of the Separatists? So rough. Anakin and Obi-Wan foil another assassination attempt, this time in the form of centipede worms crawling like so many phalluses over Padme in bed. They pursue the bounty hunter, but before the killer can talk, she's taken out of commission by a poisoned dart. Vader breaths and no! no! That was for you, Sean. You? For Zam. For Zam. Zam, we hardly knew you. We hardly knew you. And we didn't even know what you looked like until the end. (laughs) The Jedi Council tells Padme, go into hiding. Go into hiding on your home planet, Naboo, where everyone knows who you are. They'll never find you there. (laughs) So she heads to Naboo, Anakin's throbbing erection in tow. (laughs) 
Obi-Wan follows the poison dart clue to Kamino, a system beyond the Outer Rim that's been suspiciously erased from the Jedi Temple archives. Then things get wet. Oh, yeah. Padme and Ani go to Lake Country on Mm. Naboo and talk about their feelings. Boy, do they. (laughs) 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 Obi-Wan, meanwhile, travels to the ocean planet Kamino, where he discovers that the Kaminoans are producing a huge clone army for the Republic, ordered by the late Jedi Master sifo They were modeled, Obi-Wan learns, on the DNA of the bounty hunter Jango Fett. Words fail to describe what Anakin and Padme are up to. It's true. I mean, <laughs> but boy, I, do they try. I don't even know how. There's no way to describe it. <gasps> He's haunted, Jason. Haunted! You're in my very soul, tormenting me! Eventually, they roll down a hill together. <laughs> After Anakin espouses some white fascist leanings. <laughs> then he's just like, just kidding. Just, just yeah. kidding. Just let's think about it. Just makes you think, that's all. I'm a free thinker. On Kamino, Obi-Wan has an icy meeting with Jango and briefs the Jedi Council on his findings. Later, he and Jango fight and the bounty hunter and his unaltered clone son. Son. Sure. Boba Fett. Boba. Fleet. Haunted by nightmares about his mother, Anakin, with Padme, travels to Tatooine. He discovers that Shmi has been taken hostage by Tusken Raiders. He tracks her down. Anakin's mother dies in his arms. Vader breaths and no! no! For Shmi Skywalker! Tough you end were for Shmi. deep down by the Force. <laughs> Once upon a time. Oh, but never by Qui-Gon. Unforge. Skywalker gives in to his hate and small thing wipes out a village of Tusken Raiders, man, woman, and child. The children too, man. Even the younglings. Everybody. <laughs> Going to become something of a habit for Anakin. Vader breath says no! <laughs> oh, for the sand people. Tough end for them. Very. (laughs) Obi-Wan, meanwhile, tracks Jango to the planet Geonosis. He stumbles upon a meeting of Separatist leaders and is very quickly taken captive. Count Dooku, a.k.a. Dookie, tries to recruit Obi-Wan as his one of many, (laughs) one of his many (laughs) apprentices. Stay tuned. (laughs) But Obi-Wan naturally refuses. Meanwhile, Anakin at Padme's behest. Unbelievable shit. <laughs> Anakin, I hate him! <laughs> Goes to Geonosis to very begrudgingly rescue his master and mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Anakin, very strong, like, I got killed in a bullshit way in Fortnite vibes. <laughs> like, this lag, what the hell? Why are you camping vibes from Anakin Skywalker? On Coruscant, Jar Jar. <laughs> oh, boy. Acting senator from Naboo, Representative Binks, in Padme's absence, proposes giving emergency war powers to Chancellor Palpatine, who then goes, I will give these back. As soon as we don't need them anymore. Right away. As soon as we don't need them anymore. I love democracy. (laughs) Nobody loves democracy more than me. I love the Republic. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. (laughs) Meanwhile, on Geonosis, Anakin and Padme are captured after a brief scrap. 
Yoda tells Mace to head to Geonosis while he will go to Kamino. Out in the arena, where Anakin, Padme, and Obi-Wan are forced to cruelly battle with three poor creatures who have no business being speared and sabered to death. I know. For your collective entertainment. Fucking cruel. Citizens Why don't one of Geonosis? you big shots get down there and fight them instead of these fucking animals? <laughs> Terrible. And just in the nick of time, the Jedi arrive. A huge fight breaks out between Mace Windu and crew and the Separatist droid army. And it goes like, okay, for a second. Yeah. Django, RIP, head chopped off. No. No, yada, yada, yada. Django. Formative moment for young Boba, clearly. And then just when all seems lost, who should arrive? But Yoda and the clone troops around the survivors, around a podcast the, create! Around the survivors, a podcast create. The Separatist leaders cut their losses and make a run for it. Obi-Wan and Anakin duel Dookie, but he is... He's tough. Powerful. He's been filming Two Towers and he is ready. He is ready, folks! <laughs> And before long, he cuts off Anakin's arm. And again, just in the nick of time. Yoda. Yoda. All this talk about how, you know, the dark side is clouding his ability to use the force. Still got it. Still got it. Still got it a little bit. Still got it. Shows up, saves Anakin and Obi-Wan, fights Dooku quite impressively. It's dope. It's a good fight. Seeing Yoda wield a lightsaber for the first time is dope. It's a good fight. Fights to a draw. The ex-Jedi escapes Death Star plans. In his hand. Later on Coruscant, Dooku catches up with his master, Palpy. And on Naboo, Padme makes the second worst decision of her (laughs) entire life behind making Jar Jar a senator and secretly marries Anakin Skywalker. (laughs) The Clone Wars have begun, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Quite a movie. (laughs) Jason. Clear your mind must be. Yes. If you are to discover the real villains behind this podcast. Let's really try and think it out. It's Isaac. (laughs) Count Isaac. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings. Use the force. The defining theme of this episode is... Secrets and Schemes! The first scheme, of course was the scheme involving the public, yes. the masses. Yes. Getting them hyped and jazzed we about, have a, this brand. <laughs> about a Star Wars movie again in the wake of Phantom Menace. Did it work? I mean... Everyone had a lot of work to do. There was a lot of work to do. After the Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones came out three years later, May 16th, 2002. We've got a 10-year time jump in the canon, in the story. It's important to make the love story. That's right. Not extremely troubling. Except <laughs> that the. It's merely very troubling. Just <laughs> playing Padme is the same yeah. <laughs> in episode one and two. And Anakin is now played by an adult man, Hayden Christensen, rather than a literal child boy, Jake Lloyd. So. That part's tough to adjust to. 10 years in the canon, three years have passed in real life, 25 years have passed in real life since A New Hope. What was the film's working title? It was Jar Jar's Great Adventure. (laughs) A little running bit, an in-joke with everyone working on it that simultaneously felt like 
an effort to say, we know how you all felt about episode mm-hmm. one, and we're going to make something great here. We're right. going to acknowledge it. We see you. We're going to give you something you love. And also, like, a very real acknowledgement of the anxiety around the project because it had to be good. It's, I mean, it's really interesting because, <laughs> because the idea going into Phantom Menace was we're about to open up, like, a bank that has a license to print its own money. Turns out that part was correct. That part was correct. But I think that they were a little shocked at the public response, which underwrites that currency, Mm -hmm. being so shaky. Yes. So this movie had a protracted script writing Mm -hmm. process. There seemed to be a lot of, again, palpable anxiety. Jonathan Hales came in helping George Lucas with this script, a script that we will talk about at length while discussing the plot of this movie because uh, (laughs) this movie, we were chatting about this in Slack while prepping this outline. And I said to you and Isaac and Cram that it reminded me a little bit of For Love of the Game. It's a great comp. If you just remove the intolerable love plot... Unfortunately, you have a pretty the, good movie. The backbone of the of the story, unfortunately, troubling that that's seventy percent of the film. Right. <laughs> if you just remove the patient's spine, <laughs> the blob, yeah. But like, I don't know. Think about Wally. You know, the blob people. They were they were okay even without bone density. So yeah, I you could have done it. As as we are going to get into, I think you know if some of the chemistry creating scenes had just worked better right then maybe you know yes so the dialogue very tough the love story very tough the performances particularly in that aspect of the film Hayden Christensen very tough mm-hmm. critical response was simultaneously an improvement over the response to Phantom Menace. <laughs> yeah and was still like pretty bleak yeah couple samplings Roger Ebert says, there's not a romantic word, they, meaning. Who loved the first film, by the (laughs) way. (laughs) Thought we had all lost our capacity to appreciate wonder. (laughs) (laughs) And then how quickly he also grew accustomed (laughs) to what wonder looks like in the prequel trilogy. There's not a romantic word, they, meaning Christensen and Portman, exchange that has not long since been reduced to cliche. No, wait. Anakin tells Padme at one point, I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating. Not like you. You're soft and smooth. I hadn't heard that before. Great stuff from Raj. Really on our corner there making fun of the sand. Yeah, the uh, European wax center on Naboo is apparently quite good. (laughs) Not like you're Brazilian. Soft and smooth and only cost $125. (laughs) Friend of the Ringer, Scott Tobias, said, quote, never a competent director of actors. (laughs) (laughs) Who often looks stiff and disoriented against the blue screen backdrops. Lucas gets little help from Hayden Christensen, his choice to bring young Anakin Skywalker from precocious childhood into petulant adolescence. So that gets to the heart of a lot of the criticism of the film. Yeah. It's funny, you know, watching the uh, director's commentary, so much of the stuff that Portman and Christensen talk about on there is like, oh, in this scene, there's actually nothing for me to look at. I was in a green room Mm -hmm. and asked to do X, Y, Z, and that must have been so disorienting. And then on top of that, roll down a CGI hill surrounded Mm -hmm. by CGI (laughs) creatures and create this romantic chemistry 
right. out of nowhere under these fluorescent lights. I mean, that's a lot to ask. They had to just create Paolo in their minds, Jason. <laughs> Fucking Paolo. He man. wasn't there with them. He's a little older than me. The curls. The curls. But Hayden Christensen, when he was cast in this role, was really something of an it boy in yeah, Hollywood. He was. Coming off Life is a House, Golden Globe nom. Good looking kid. Handsome. Yeah. Handsome. Good, good looking kid. Charismatic Canadian. And this was, you know, shift back in time to when they were casting this role. And obviously, even before then, the younger Anakin role for Phantom Menace. I mean, these are among the most coveted roles that you could possibly imagine having in Hollywood. You get to play the guy who's going to become Darth Vader. So the expectations are colossal. And when the thing that you get in response to that, when you walk into the theater, harboring those expectations, holding them, is I don't like sand. Whether that's fair or not, it's really tough. The script did not do Hayden Christensen any favors. And in this movie, he's just not ready to pull it off. I think he's a lot better in Sif. But there also, I think, was just a huge divide that not everybody was able to or wanted to cross in their minds of accepting that, you know, we talk, think about what we talked about in Phantom Menace with accepting that the person who would become Darth Vader was this sweet, right. kind child who actually wanted to help, wanted to do right by the people in his lives and even complete strangers to him. Now the shift that you have to make is even harder. Darth Vader is a whiny emo brat. Yeah. That was just tough for some people to process. It wasn't the Vader, pre-Vader, that they wanted. Yeah, there's not like a core of discipline or dedication to some kind of ideal that you're looking for. It's really just like he's fundamentally weak. And that's the thing that Lucas decided was going to be the thing that was going to turn him into an evil character, not some kind of like burning desire to do good or some like other thing that could be twisted in some way. And, you know, we've seen many, many stories that have taken a character's desire to kind of create justice and rightness in the world and have that twisted against them. This is just a guy who's like loved his mom Mm -hmm. and had a massive crush on a girl he met 10 years ago (laughs) and they kissed once and now he can't let it go. And if something should happen to her, he will just kill children. Younglings. <laughs> we talked about this last time. We're going to talk about it more today. We'll continue to talk about it the entire course of the podcast. The idea that Darth Vader, the thing that drove him to the dark side, to evil, quote unquote, before obviously he eventually comes back to the light and restores balance to the force. The idea that it was love, that that was yeah. his driving factor is actually really compelling and interesting. It's not that he just wanted power, though. Obviously, that's a part of it, too. When we get our, you know, mock UN fascism from him in this movie. But the people in the world of the story, the people in the universe of Star Wars, perceive it the way that you just explained it. Yeah. That it made him weak. And so it's the way that other characters are positioned against him. And it's, of course, particularly the Jedi, the people who are training him and mentoring him, saying to him, this isn't right. Right. This isn't how you're allowed to think and feel. I think the thing for me with that transition is, you know, what's the through line? This is a person who wanted love and wanted to hold on to love. And then when that transition to Darth Vader happens— that just goes away. Like, there's no right. other relationship that takes its place. So this is exactly the, the heart of the matter, yeah. I think, for why it was so challenging for people to accept that this was the version of mm-hmm. pre-Vader that they were getting is because it didn't and doesn't feel connected to Darth as you understand him based on the 
primary movies, his expanded universe legends arc contains a ton of him lusting after Padme. But for film-only viewers, this can feel strange. So that's going to be one of the things that we continue to explore as we talk about this is, can we find those connections? Can we make sense of that arc and that journey? Before we talk about Anakin specifically more, this film made $641 million worldwide, which is a big number, but not a big Star Wars number. Right. And it was the first Star Wars movie that got outgrossed in the year that it came out. Two other films domestically and three worldwide. Domestically, Two Towers and Spider-Man and globally also Chamber of Secrets. Two Towers and Spider-Man absolutely deserved. Oh, yeah. Two Towers amazing. Helm's Deep. Incredible. Fucking incredible. Unbelievable. So let's chat about Anakin more. He who who earned himself a Razzie nom. Seven Razzie noms for this film, including uh, two wins for Worst Screenplay and Worst Supporting Actor for Hayden Christensen. Tough stuff for our guy. Anakin and Padme's love. Anakin and Shmi's bond. And a little Anakin-Obi-Wan relationship talk mixed in here for good measure because obviously all of those things are connected and directly inform each other. So we're going to talk about the Separatists and the Sith in a bit. We're going to talk about the Jedi Order, but let's talk more about Anakin here because the heart of the film is his relationships. So secrets, plots, and schemes really shape every part of this story, including the burgeoning love between Anakin and Padme. The whole reason that they are with each other is because of this secret plot on Padme's life, takes the life of her handmaiden Corde and unknown other people on the ship. Why don't you blow it up before the ramp goes down? Also, pick up the corpse of your handmaiden. <laughs> and just, leave, just leave it. Gotta go vote! <laughs> I'm out! Thanks for your service! <laughs> um, so, of course, an attack on Padme's life, and our good friend Palpy suggests... You're too important to the Republic with mm-hmm. this crucial vote That's happening right. right now. Let's put you under the protection of the Jedi. Mm. How about Obi-Wan Kenobi? You know him. Great guy. You're all pals. You're all pals. Hung out with him in Tatooine. Yeah. He uh, happens to have a young Padawan yeah. who I think you might remember. Yeah, he was in fourth grade when you first started flirting. Do you remember him? <laughs> uh, it's less clear initially to the characters how to even grasp the kind of outlines of the plot to Uh kill the senator, she would seemingly have many enemies. In many ways, the Anakin Padme love story feels like it's like in a different movie than the rest of the plot. It clearly does. It's it's this kind of like rosy, sunshiny thing kind of wrapped within a story about political intrigue and Uh politics and backstabbing and schemes within schemes. And within that is this hopeful story about two young people kind of just finding their way in this right. relationship. How can we be together time. in a world that doesn't want us to be? Right. And also, like, why can't Can I slice you? your fruit? Can I slice your fruit <laughs> using the Force? Can you, one, yeah. jack off with the Force? Right. I say definitely. And two, yeah. can, can you use can you the use... powers of the Force to right. stimulate your partner? Um, I'm going to go with yes. I think— yeah. Obviously, you can use the force to do quite powerful movements, to move heavy objects and throw them long distances. Yeah. But I think the fruit scene shows us that there's a gentleness. A nimbleness. Yeah, <laughs> that, that can be achieved if one concentrates mm-hmm. and trusts your feelings. <laughs> 
Trust your feelings and trust your ability to use the force to maneuver the vibrator towards your partner. Well, I mean, that's a great one. You could absolutely do that. Do you think Jedi have lightsaber dildos? Here's my proof for being able to use the force to either sexually pleasure oneself or someone else. Mm -hmm. Here is the uh, Sith code. Peace is a lie. There is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. That's like just admitting it there. Through passion, I gain strength. Victory there is definitely a euphemism for a full climax. (laughs) (laughs) I can definitely see Anakin like, I gained victory! (laughs) Anakin, what are you doing? She told me. She told me that I gained victory. And I don't think she's able to fake it, folks. She couldn't fake me gaining victory. Now, here's the other question. Do you have to do the hand motion? (laughs) Do you have to to extend the hand? I think you you probably do. Right? Yeah. You would? Probably, right? I guess you could just use your mind. You could, but I wonder, see, now here's the thing. I'm going to go by Last Jedi. When Kylo spins his lightsaber to point at Snoke, right? He doesn't extend his hand to point at the lightsaber. So therefore, he's not truly focusing the force using his hand. But he is, with his hand, kind of creating a a physical kind of image in his mind Mm -hmm. in order for him to imagine doing it. Like a pulley system. Right. Or like a mnemonic device, but for the force. Uh You understand? So I think that while you would need to maybe... Make a make a fist, make a hollow fist, uh-huh. or kind of like a finger out gesture with your hand. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily need to point it at the genital area. Are you definitely using your hand? I've no. Well, I mean, we've never seen someone. Have we ever seen anyone use the force with their tongue? Oh, that's interesting. Obi Wan does have that kick that he does, right? So I wondered: is there force coming from the foot? <laughs> I mean, you would think any, probably any, any, any p- appendage, really. Well, really, now you're, when you think about it that way, you've got to be extremely careful oh. with the force. Yeah, I mean, I think about this all the time with The Flash, with Barry Allen. Oh, my God. Like, it, at some point, it's a, a health and safety hazard. Yeah, Superman, you know? could, Superman could absolutely destroy, like murder you. <laughs> I mean, I think Superman could actually like break a cinder block with his ejaculate. <laughs> That's like a whole different thing. <laughs> anyway. Um, <clears throat> boy, um, we made it through one and a half bullet points before we got there, you know? Man. Um, so let's talk about our boy Anakin. Yes. Handsome. Oof. Sweaty. 19. Clearly a virgin. Yeah. And my dude is horny to be back in Padme's presence. He can barely contain himself. Obi-Wan is like, dude, chill. Like, mm-hmm. I can sense this. He's I haven't seen her in 10 years, Master. Padme, Clea has not been uh, watching Christensen's no. IMDb no. oof from before this. <laughs> Incredible response to see Annie? First of all, would you really recognize someone that like you haven't seen since he was nine? I guess maybe just contextually. Because, right, because you Obi-Wan know, oh, and therefore, how many, Yeah, how many young strapping Jedi are there who are going to be in close proximity to Obi-Wan? To Obi-Wan. Right, right, okay. Annie, my goodness. You've, you've grown. grown. Yeah. <laughs> His response, 
you have two. More beautiful, I mean, for a senator. Good Smooth. moves. Smooth moves, egg slacks. Um, reminder again that this is, pre- I mean, it's okay now. But it was pretty creepy because, like, he was nine when they met. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And again, she was supposed to be 14. The actual age difference is not as extreme as it seems just from looking at Natalie Portman and Jake Lloyd on screen in the first film. However, was he horny at nine and 10 for like what happened? Yeah. I mean, I think he was clearly besotten with her. Yeah. Are you an in angel? love with her, you know? <laughs> Are you an angel? Yeah. And giving her the, the necklace that he had carved. Padme, her response to this will shift over the course of the film, clearly a little disturbed initially. Padme tells Obi-Wan, because she's got a lot of other stuff on her mind, you know, her own life, the vote, not just Anakin's There's a lot. force lightning dreams here, you know? Force <laughs> yeah. ejaculate there's, dreams. There's the mere question of galactic peace That's and right. my own personal life. That's right. And it's a reasonable inquiry for her to make. Obi-Wan reminds her, listen, That's not why we're here. We're not here to investigate. We're just here to protect you. And Anakin's so eager to impress, so eager to please, and of course, also eager to actually keep her safe, swears they will uncover this secret plot. And there is some charm to the way this scene plays out where we can really see right away that Anakin is not a great listener, doesn't play by the rules of the Jedi Order, isn't just going to fall in line and do what Obi-Wan tells him. He's a free and independent spirit. And that spirit is going to lead him to trying to please Padme above all else, which is kind of how the rest of the arc is going to go. And one of the interesting things about this is that, yes, he's being brash. Yes, he's being foolish. But he actually has identified something very real in this moment. In the galaxy, at this point in the Republic's history, when secrets and lies are the currency of the day and the dark side is obscuring so much of what people are able to see, be aware of, a person who is in possession of the facts and is able to uncover the truth is a rare kind of Mm -hmm. friend and ally that can actually differentiate him from everyone else. So Anakin, always the precocious one, pushes back against his master's bristling rebuke, and he says, the investigation, it's implied in our mandate. Mission creep. <laughs> the definition of mission creep. It is. It really is. But why else send Great. a Jedi, It's he overkill, says. master! <laughs> Anakin, we got news for you. Sheev, we'll clear that up for you one yeah, day. Really quickly. But this is the nature of a plot, of a scheme. As Tyrion would say, you know, schemes and plots, uh, they're the same thing, right? Cersei. <laughs> They often necessitate some sort of duplicity to match. That's how the cycle perpetuates. They have a scheme. We have to figure it out. In order to do so, we have to enact a scheme of our own. And so the cycle goes. Some sort of mirroring stratagem that can allow one side to penetrate, decipher, and crack the riddle. And from jump, Anakin is (laughs) laser-focused on the mission. No distractions. Zero. The first thing he says after Padme uh, goes to sleep is, I thought about her every day since we parted. She's forgotten me completely. He just immediately goes into forlorn boyfriend And Jar Jar is like, Jar Jar is like, listen, I'm with her all the time, okay? I'm Misa with her all the time. She was happy. Believe me. A smile on her face. Yeah, a smile on her face. Her disposition brightened immediately. That, of course, bringing a classic hate chill response from Obi-Wan. Be mindful of your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And later, while Padme sleeps, a reminder of the pledge that Anakin has made to the Jedi Order and what that pledge prohibits and what kind of people, untrustworthy politicians, people who keep secrets, are to be kept at arm's length. He's, of course, like mentally scanning mm-hmm. every breath that Padme takes in the room. I'm aware of everything that happens <laughs> in that room. Cool, dude. Like, super creepy. Calm down. These are the kind of mantras that Anakin will not be able to abide and will rebel against this, you know, Obi-Wan trying to reel him in. Got to get control of your feelings. This is actually some of the stuff that I found, while at times it was like a little overbearing, like I get it, this was the most interesting dynamic to me. I found this this pretty, totally, pretty fun. You know, like that I am an absolute sucker for a student surpassing the master mm-hmm. kind of story. Yeah, and the two things that are simultaneously playing out in Anakin's heart and mind here, that aspect, I'm better than the person who's telling me to chill, right? Yes. And then also the very real, totally all-consuming feelings that he has yeah. for Padme that the people he's supposed to trust and rely on are saying are a problem and are yeah. not something that he's allowed to indulge. Well, that's exactly what makes Anakin such easy pickings for right. the it's Emperor. It's like the Emperor. What could be more appealing to Anakin than someone to come along who's very powerful, very influential, and that person to say, I can give you the thing you want. It's What you're feeling is fine. Mm-hmm. Give in to it. Yep. You should be feeling that. That's really where you can find the source of your strength and your power is leaning into the thing that they're telling you you should be afraid of. But before we start feeling too bad for Anakin, let's remember that he is a fucking creep. He is a fucking weirdo. (laughs) And that's before he starts murdering people. He says, this is a real line in the movie to Obi-Wan. She covered the cameras. Yeah. She meaning Padme in her bedroom. Yeah. Okay. She did. The quote continues, and again, this is a real line in the movie. I don't think she liked me watching her. Yeah, I don't think she did either. Here's another. Here's a question. <laughs> Someone's trying to assassinate the senator. Why are we putting her in a world where spaceships and craft that can fly into the air mm-hmm. exist? Yeah. Why are we putting her in a room with like that's all windows? <laughs> great question, but don't worry. Soon they'll have a great plan to keep her safe on her home planet, where everyone knows who she is. There's no point in the movie where they actually have a good, secure, safe location for her. Not one point. Here, in the room surrounded by windows that droids can penetrate with ease, as Jason noted, it transpires that Anakin and Padme, with a little help from their Sentinel, R2-D2, have hatched a plan to use Padme as bait because the primary objective is to keep her safe. But an almost equally primary objective find is out to who, find out find this assassin. who is coming after her. Obi-Wan, of course, not thrilled, but Anakin says, oh, you know, it was, it was her idea. It was her idea. And so in light of our theme here, it's interesting to think about this because if you're operating against somebody mm-hmm. who lurks in the shadows, sometimes your only move is to try to draw them out into the light, to take away their ability to shroud their intentions. If you can see who they are, then you can try to figure out what they're doing and why and how you can act against it. I can sense everything going on in that room, <laughs> Anakin says, staring at the door. This reminded me of, rewatching this, reminded me of Homelander and the boys when he's just staring. That's very, very disturbing. X-ray vision through the wall, looking at his intended target as she... What a great villain, Homelander. Fills her bottles with breast milk. Um, (laughs) But Anakin is not just 
thinking about Padme, there's someone else haunting his dreams, and that is his mother. What has happened to her since they've been separated? He is having nightmares about being away from her, nightmares about what has befallen her mm-hmm. in the time since they have left each other. Nightmares about violating his promise to return to her. Just saying. And it's no accident that Padme or Shmi are once again positioned in parallel fashion. The uh-huh. fear Anakin feels over losing his mother and the anger and hatred he feels when his effort to save her from the Tuscan Raiders fails directly informs the response he has and the experience he will have in Revenge of the Sith to losing Padme. Yes. It's one more thing that he just cannot live without. I'd much rather dream about Padme, Anakin tells Obi-Wan here. I mean, stay tuned, bud. You yeah. will. <laughs> when Zam, the changeling, her droid deposits the uh, phallus worms, I the little them. centipede penises, into Padme's bedchambers, and our dude R2, listen. Where are you? Nearly, nearly why are you infallible. In low, why are you in low power mode right this now? This is not R2's best moment. Yeah. Why are you saving battery right now? This is the assassin centipedes crawling all over their intended target. Little slow on the draw there. But while this is happening, Anakin and Obi-Wan get into a crucial disagreement about Palpatine that Mm -hmm. is really precisely timed in the film and deliberately interspersed with the shot of the attack on Padme. Oh, they're mentioning Palpatine as this attack is being played out. Again, reminding us of how all of these threads, all of them, lead back to him. All of the feelings and hidden intentions are part of that stew that he is brewing. And in that cauldron, the Empire is sizzling, sizzling. But we, Anakin, Obi-Wan, no one can look too directly into that Sith-shaped light right now because there's an assassin to pursue. Obi-Wan literally jumps through the window onto the droid. Love it. It's an Anakin move. It is a real Anakin move. And you're like, oh, Obi-Wan. Hello. Yeah, I love it. And Anakin then jumps into this really dope yellow XJ6 airspeeder. Which he steals. He does. He does steal. He commandeers it for the mission. Took me a while to find the speeder that I I wanted, that (laughs) needed a no roof. You know, it happens. Like Hopper had to take the, what was it, the Toddmobile? The (laughs) Toddmobile. Season 3 of Stranger Things. Sometimes you just, you need a vehicle. And we get this Blade Runner style chase through the skies, and then eventually the streets of Curson, And it's a really fun sequence. There's a lot of CGI flash, but also some insights in, in this sequence into Anakin's personality. We know our dude likes to pod race, right? This pod racing. But right here we get to see with his taunts about rivaling Yoda as a swordsman and his reckless speeder piloting and his willingness to literally just jump out of the aircraft into the sky, that arrogance that will lead to his fall, is bubbling. And it plays here as largely good-natured. But the seeds are in place for Palpatine to come in and water. Anakin's abilities are uncommon. He can actually be the best. He can tap into the power that that offers if he wants to and if he's willing to pay the price that pursuing that will cost. And the setting for all of this is also really coded because that, again, Blade Runner, Deckard chasing Zora vibe Mm. that we get in this entire sequence with the flashing neon lights makes us think about what a place like this with its bright lights and the loud sounds and the smoking drinks, what it masks, what secrets are lurking there in the shadows. We also get lots of strands that connect us to the original trilogy. 
foreshadowing in the canonical timeline, hearkening back to the past in ours. Obi-Wan handing Anakin his dropped lightsaber. By the mm-hmm. way, Nintendo, we figured this out. <laughs> they figured it out. Yeah. Put straps on it, guys. What are we doing? Lightsaber, we controller, it's the same. And urging him to be patient as they enter the, the Outlander Club says, why do I get the feeling you're going to be the death of me? Mm. Anakin, of course, will in fact be the death of him when Darth Vader cuts down Obi-Wan at the end of New Hope, making Obi-Wan, of course, more powerful than he could imagine, not realizing that Obi had learned the secrets of becoming a Force ghost and becoming one with the cosmic force. As the camera pans by some Star Wars cantina cameos from Ahmed Best, Jar Jar, and Anthony Daniels, C-3PO, and others, and as Obi-Wan uses the Jedi mind trick to convey George Lucas's anti-cigarette stance to the death stick <laughs> salesman. You're going to go home and reconsider your life. I'm going to go home and reconsider my life. Obi-Wan cutting off Zam's arm, mm-hmm. presaging that moment in the cantina on Mos Eisley when Obi-Wan, a much older, much more grizzled, cuts off Ponda Baba's arm. Mm. With Obi-Wan looking for uh, anybody who would have made the poison dart that then took out Zam, Anakin is tasked, and you really had to bend his arm mm. to make it happen, with Padme's protection just him mm. accompanying the woman he loves back to Naboo. And you might as well throw those rose petals on the bed. I you mean, might as well sprinkle them, sprinkle them up to the door. Mace, what are you doing? Put on some, some soft music. What are you doing? I've got an idea. Let's place the young boy uh, who's, is that your light? Oh, that's not your lightsaber. That's your hard <laughs> dick poking out of your robes. Let's send you to Naboo. Also, you've a day ago installed spy cams in this woman's bedroom. (laughs) Let's send you home with her. Uh, And what does Anakin, primed by Palpatine's fluffing, do as he and Padme are alone? Complain about Mm Obi-Wan constantly. About how Mm -hmm. Obi-Wan, he could be great. He could be one of the greatest. He could be the greatest. If only Obi-Wan would stop holding him back. I'm really ahead of him. He's overly critical. He never listens. It's not fair. This is tough. That part. That's tough. me in every editing process. <laughs> in, me in every edit doc. Um, <laughs> Padme, somehow not repelled by this, tells Anakin that mentorship is the only way to grow. Mm-hmm. And then this really iconic exchange. <laughs> but I am grown up. You said it yourself. And then he just steps to about six inches away from her, just looking at her, and looks at her with not even like. Looks at her like the way a lion on the Sahara would look at some gazelles. (laughs) (laughs) Nice zebra on. (laughs) Yeah, like eyes extremely focused, but also a little glassy. And she says, please don't look at me like that. Why not? It makes me uncomfortable. Incredible (laughs) sequence in a movie for children. The grin on his face when she says that is terrifying. Terrifying! It's funny what breaks her down after this is him committing mass slaughter. (laughs) And the children, too! (laughs) But that didn't make you uncomfortable. Get out of there! Speaking of romance, over a clandestine traveler's lunch, Padme Anakin, spurned by his just inordinately painful attempts at flirty retorts, whether he's even allowed to love. I thought that was forbidden for a Jedi, she says. He clarifies, attachment is forbidden. Possession is forbidden. Compassion, which I would define as unconditional love, is central to a Jedi's life. So you might say that we are encouraged to love. Now, 
this is in some ways a very inelegant, ham-fisted, just-the-tip rationale for Anakin. Like, no, I'm telling you. It's fine. It's okay. It's okay. It's It's actually, it's actually allowed. (laughs) If you, if you really look at it, it's actually fine. There's nothing in the Jedi code about (laughs) pre-cum. Right. Nothing. Why why would they assign a Jedi to his crush if they did not actually support love? You see? (laughs) But in other ways, this speaks to a a more relaxed and sensible understanding of the Jedi mission. It actually does, which would not require shutting off your heart, especially when you're supposed to be searching your feelings and forcing you to live this kind of sequestered life removed from the kinds of attachment that are so central to being human or removed from the sand. Because on Naboo, Anakin and Padme share a chat on the balcony about youth, about nostalgia, about lifelong attachment. And Padme, it's a lovely setting. Padme reflects on the majesty of her home world. And it is is beautiful. As you've noted, so lovely that Sheev keeps his holiday home there still. He loves to retire there sometimes. (laughs) She talks about the joy of sitting on the sand with the sun on her, guessing the names of the chirping birds. And Anakin replies with a line that we have mocked perhaps more than any other here on Binge Mode. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere. Not like here. Here, everything is soft, smooth. He literally bites his lower lip as he's saying this. I'm sorry, are you talking about Padme in contrast to like dirt? (laughs) He literally starts rubbing her arm as he's saying this. And as you have noted, basically stops himself just short of saying soft and smooth like your vagina out loud, even though that's clearly what he's thinking. What else is he thinking about? And this is kind of the movie in miniature, this moment. There is a lot to mock right on the surface. And then there is this secret pain and a hidden meaning that are informing this remark from Anakin and that we do want to spend a minute talking about as we also mock it and make jokes about it. Sand to Anakin means Tatooine. It means the homeworld where he and his mother were enslaved, where he dreams now still of his mother being tormented and tortured, where he will soon one day return and watch her die in his arms and then slaughter legions of people who bear the word sand in their derogatory name that others use against him. But that richer text is obscured Anakin and Padme then stare at each other for approximately six hours. Boy, that's a long stare. Yeah. That's then, a long stare. And then they kiss, fatefully, before Padme pulls away, realizing that this cannot go anywhere. She is a senator. He is a Jedi. They can't do this. Right. He put cameras Later, in her room. While, <laughs> while frolicking in a meadow. <laughs> Incredible scene. Just out in the meadow. They start sharing, <laughs> you know, stories about... Previous experiences, which mm-hmm. is, you know, normal. Mm-hmm. And Padme talks about Paolo, mm-hmm. first kiss. Mm-hmm. Mm. And Anakin gets pissed. So jealous. He immediately launches into a diatribe about <laughs> how ineffective the current system of government is. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> 
Hey, Padme, how quickly did Paolo transition from a little light petting to expressing fascist leanings? <laughs> did you get to tyranny or third base first? Padme basically is like, hey, you know, you're talking about that's how democracy is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. It's it's messy and it, there's a lot of mm-hmm. yelling back and forth, but hopefully everybody's voice is heard. And from there we get a consensus. And Anakin is not hearing this. Right. What he wants Sometimes is, people don't agree, she says. That's the problem. What he wants is a strong leader who everyone will listen to. And she says, well, that's not how it should happen. Says, well, then they should be made to. Concerning. Quite concerning. And of course, this just gets her hot. But not in the way he wants. Yeah. <laughs> when she calls him out for describing a dictatorship, he says, he's just, I'm just putting it out there. Just kidding. I just want to have the conversation. Just kidding. I like yeah. to tease you. There are the seeds again, the not-so-secret desire that Anakin has to cut through all the bullshit, Mm -hmm. to see a strong leader take his or her rightful place in the galaxy and just fix all these problems. This statement and others like it stem from his egotism and his feeling that people with power should use their power. Later, it will come from fear, from his fear of loss. But they're all wrapped up in the same thing. He wants to control yes. the things that are happening around him. He feels like the the galaxy is out of control. And why should that be when people like him and the Jedi exist who clearly have so much power to control right. things? Can bring order, whether it's to his romantic life or to the galaxy at large. Shortly thereafter, we get stiff competition, but arguably the film's most painful scene. When Anakin confesses his love to Padme in a fireside chat. From the moment I met you all those years ago, not a day has gone by when I haven't thought of you. Now that I'm with you again, I'm in agony. The closer I get to you, the worse it gets. The thought of not being with you, I can't breathe. I'm haunted by the kiss that you should never have given me. My heart is beating, hoping that kiss will not become a scar. You hurt my very soul, tormenting me. What can I do? I will do anything you ask. If you are suffering as much as I am, please tell me. And then she just like takes out her earbuds. What? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, what? I was listening to the Ringer NBA show. What did you say? (laughs) You okay? I was checking out Sonic Boom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wait until you hear episode six. (laughs) So of all the secrets that are in this movie, I think it's fair to say that we wish this had been kept a secret. Yeah. The thing that strikes me about it is how it keeps going. It's very protracted. This is just bad writing. Now, I feel like we always have to, again, strike balance because we want to be clear. We love Star Wars. That's why we're doing binge mode Star Wars. This is objectively bad. It's just terrible. I think the general consensus is that Phantom Menace is the worst movie. This right here is why Attack of the Clones is the worst movie. This is the worst scene. And I do agree with you. This is the worst movie. My heart is beating. Hoping that kiss will not become a scar. I'm haunted by the kiss that you should never have given me is ludicrous. Ludicrous. You are my very soul tormenting me. (laughs) Now, on the one hand, that's actually in line with where Anakin is in his life. Like you said, he he doesn't have any actual exposure to— No experience whatsoever. Any kind of— conversation like He doesn't this. even really hang out with people his age. Right. You know, like, there's no— But the person who wrote the script does. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Anyway, Padme tells Anakin it's not possible. Right. Anakin needs to live in the real world. He's training to be a Jedi. She's a senator. They can't pursue a forbidden love, regardless of the way we feel about each other, she says. And he, of course, latches right onto that. What is that? That's a life raft. That's hope right there. Then you do feel something. 
Oh, boy. Believe me, Anakin says. I wish I could just wish away my feelings. I highlight that in the Google Doc. I drop in a comment that says, I wish. Nix the wish rep. This one is just tough. Really rough. Anakin not willing to concede that Padme's right when she says that they'd have to give up their callings to be together. Says we could keep it a secret. Foreshadowing here, of course. We'd be living a lie, she says, when we couldn't keep, even if we wanted to. I couldn't do that. Could you, Anakin? Could you live like that? He and should he be says, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's try it. Can we try it once? Oh, my one way to find out. I hear it's <laughs> thrilling. Yeah, who can even like we're like we're the first people to have a relationship and not tell anybody? I'll meet you in the copy room at three o'clock. Come on. <laughs> he says no. You're right. It would destroy us. And it will. He also cannot live with knowing that his mother, who he swore in Phantom Menace to return to, is suffering. And he knows that the dreams he is having about her are absolutely real reflections of what is happening to her. Over his morning meditation, he tells Padme, listen, I have to go to Tatooine. Right. I'm sorry, I don't have a choice, he says. But he does, everyone does, and he has long since made it. And we'll uh-huh. note again that the choice he's made, even though it will lead him to a troubled place, is a commendable one. Uh-huh. Fighting to protect someone that he loves. The problem is that the system in which he operates makes him believe that that is wrong. Uh-huh. And then he needs to keep it a secret. And to be very, very clear. Yeah. There's a caveat here. That doesn't mean like massacring yeah. an entire village. Right. Protect mob, sure. Killing legions, less good. Man, woman, and child is cool. The children do. Younglings. After he learns from the now, by the way, vaguely Italian watcher. <laughs> this is a great call from you. Clearly, they were shaken by the criticism and yes. were like, let's give him a kind of alpine hat. Right. Yes. He's got the little pouch that hangs down yeah. where he, like, I guess, collects Edelweiss from the <laughs> from the top of the mountains. I could see him operating like a punt in Venice. Right. <laughs> and Wado says, listen, Ani, it is you. You just fix my clapper and my smoke detector. It's gotta be you. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't have your mother anymore. I sold her. Tough stuff. I'm sorry. I sold her to a, a, a moisture farmer named Lars, who we find out later freed and married her. Anakin. What a love story. I know. What, a, what an incredible. A lot of choices there. <laughs> I got an offer for you, Shmi. What do you think about this? <laughs> your freedom. If you marry me, but it's your choice now. What do you say? What a romance. Uh, Anakin heads off to the hut where Luke will one day grow up. Yep. Unhappily. How could they ever, ever figure out that that baby was Luke? I guess like the one thing, obviously it's insane that that would be where you hide him. The one thing, though, I would say is... Just don't have this scene, though, where this whole sequence where Anakin spends time there because then you are asking people to accept that no one would have con- made that connection. I guess the one thing is... Well, there's several issues here. One, record-keeping in this world is very, very thin. There's no IDs. Right. Nobody writes anything you down. You either stuff a digital right. copy in a droid or you don't. There's no reading... Basically, all data is kept on solitary planets mm-hmm. and, like, kept away from everybody. Right. You can erase 
a literal planet from the archives, and, and nobody, no one notices. No one knows. <laughs> no one notices until you're dumb enough to use a dart from that planet. So that's one. And two is, you know, space is vast. Mm. The galaxy is huge. Yeah. So I guess you're thinking, well, yes, he is with his relatives, but also, like, it's a planet among billions of planets. Right. Yeah. Like, Counterpoint, yeah. if there are billions of planets, put them on literally any other one. Just throw it out there. So Watto back in our life, and guess who else? 3PO. Hell yeah. And then guess who else? Joel Edgerton. Incredible. <laughs> Young Owen. Young Owen and his wonderful <laughs> wife, Baru. Yeah. Klee tells his stepson that, unfortunately, Tusken Raiders came, and we actually did send out a rescue party, mm-hmm. so don't, yeah. like, 30 people, uh, four came back. Yeah, I lost a leg. I lost a leg. What You'll happened? know all about that one day. Script pages for Revenge of the Sith reveal that Duco admitted to yes. facilitating this kidnapping. And we can deduce, of course, that he had to be doing this at Sidious's behest. Yes. And then once again, plots, schemes, the dark side of the force, moving all the chess pieces around. Sheev's hand, just directing everything. As Anakin rides his speeder to find his mother, he rides into the setting sun, and it is this very visually striking moment in the film. He's riding Mm -hmm. into the red, into the hues that we associate with evil, with the dark side, with the degradation of his soul right before he is about to do something that is a soul-shredding act. Think of Voldemort forming his horcruxes. What does murder do? It rips the soul. Anakin finds Shmi near death, and they share truly a very tender moment before she dies in his arms. Now, what happens when a hero faces a trial, enters the belly of the beast? What happens when the love that drives a person is torn away? How do they respond? Who can find the strength to channel that love and that pain into some kind of purpose, the way that Harry did when he lost his parents or lost Sirius or lost Dumbledore? Who gives in to the hate and Mm -hmm. lets that corrupt and defeat them? Anakin activates his lightsaber, and the slaughter begins. And as he is massacring this village of Tusken Raiders, we cut back to Yoda. And we hear Qui-Gon calling out to Anakin, foreshadowing his Force Ghost discoveries, and also a potentially deeper understanding that he possessed of Anakin's likely journey, which, Mm. as we mentioned in the Phantom Menace pod, Qui-Gon's comic book arc supports concerns about the Jedi Council Concerns about their ability to see the whole picture here and his maybe understanding that before Anakin could bring that balance, he had to travel into the dark. He returns to the moisture farm, Shmi's body in his arms, and he is absolutely unrepentant about what he has just done. Trying to kind of blow off some steam by tinkering around, fixing some stuff. Life's so much simpler when you're fixing things. Over a glass of blue milk. He basically tells Padme everything that happened. Yeah. Do you think he ever went for the blue milk straight from the teat like his son? I'm going to guess no, but you really don't taste it until you taste it from the teat. (laughs) From the source. You get it right from there. A little warm, (laughs) a little body warmth. (laughs) Frothy. (laughs) He then recounts what happened. You're not all powerful, Annie, she tells him. Well, I should be. Someday I will be. I will be the most powerful Jedi ever. Mm. I promise you. Mm-hmm. I will even learn to stop people from dying. Dun, dun, dun. dun. And now this, of course, is the very desire 
laden with the fear of loss that leads Anakin to put aside his Jedi training and side with Palpatine in Revenge of the Sith after dreaming of losing Padme in childbirth. Death is not a secret that Anakin wants to abide. And then he tells them about what he did in the village. I killed them. I killed them all. They're dead. That's what killed them means. Every single one of them. Was it just the men? Not just the men. (laughs) But the women and the children too. Younglings. They're like animals and I slaughtered them like animals. I hate them. Nice foreshadowing here for the iconic I hate you moment yes. with Obi-Wan and Sith. Padme tells Anakin, to be angry is to be human. Her response to this is extremely if, chill. If someone comes to you and is like, I just murdered, I don't know, 100 people, men, women, and children, like, and you're just like, hey, I understand. We all get upset sometimes. <laughs> you know? They're going to have call this place the Valley of the Spirits you one know, day because of what he did. And she's like- Tuscan culture (laughs) for years to come. This massacre will be part of their cultural lore. And Padme's just like, hey. We've all had tough days. Let's take five. Try politics. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I'm a Jedi. I know I'm better than this. His training has taught him that it's not okay to feel this way, to feel hatred, despite the importance of understanding your feelings. What one has to do is be able to separate themselves from their feelings, look at them, but not be subsumed by them. His life as a Jedi has made him believe that he has to pursue his heart's desire and his vengeance alike in private and darkness. He can't let anybody know. Mm-hmm. Over his mother's grave, as Klee talks not so subtly about how good Shmi was as a lover. <gasps> this is quite a eulogy. It's, just, it's like, no man has ever no man. been loved by a woman as Shmi loved me yes. every night in bed. No man has ever felt... The tearing of his flesh, the passionate clawing. You try following. As I did with Shmi. You try following the midichlorians. They say the Sarlacc pit can suck one down. Well, let me tell you. So could Shmi. So could Shmi. <laughs> I felt myself digested in her belly over a thousand years. <laughs> Sorry for your loss, Anakin. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Anakin promises, I won't fail again. And then after R2, in a, a nice little nod to an inversion of his role in A New Hope mm-hmm. when he's bringing, of course, a message to Obi-Wan on Tatooine, brings a message now from Obi-Wan to Anakin and Padme. Padme as headstrong as Anakin, insists that they go to Obi-Wan's aid because he is literally attacked while beaming this message to them. In the hologram, he comes under the assault of an enemy force and Anakin's like, we're supposed to stay here. Yeah, amazing. (laughs) I have to go rescue my mother no matter what, but Obi-Wan's good, he's got it. Padme again insists that they go and Anakin thinks that her... Fuck the man, we'll do what's right attitude here is like kind of hot, but there are the seeds here of some of the jealousy that he's going to feel specifically about the connection between Padme and Mm Obi-Wan. But before Anakin can think about that here, they are captured and sent into the arena to battle three creatures, an acolyte, Reek, 
Our good friend Reek? <laughs> and a Nexu? A Nexu. Along with Obi-Wan, who's also out there. And on their way out to the arena, our lovers exchange another just beautiful, wrenching bit of poetry here. Anakin says, don't be afraid. And Padme says, I'm not afraid to die. This is insane. I've been dying a little bit each day since you came back into my life. That sounds, it's weird because it's supposed to be good, but that makes it sound bad. Yeah. I've had a little bit of cancer every time. <laughs> You're a disease. <laughs> <sighs> Listen to that premonition, Padme. Yeah. Run. Anakin says, what are you talking about? Padme says, I love you. Amazing reply here from Anakin Skywalker. You love me? I thought we had decided not to fall in love. <laughs> That we'd be forced to live a lie and that it would destroy our lives. And Padme says, I think our lives are about to be destroyed anyway. I truly, deeply love you. And before we die, I want you to know. Wolf. Yeah. No more secrets between those two. All out in the open. At least for now. But secrets between them and others? Oh, yes. Like a secret marriage after all of the events in the arena, which we'll talk about more later. Our buddies get hitched. There is no proposal. Quite like leaving your lover in the Genosian sand dunes after she falls out of a ship and your master manages to convince you that it's your duty not to save her. What would she do, Anakin, in your position? Oh yeah, Who needs a diamond ring when you yeah, have that? she'd leave me. But when Anakin escorts Padme back to Naboo after the battle, they marry in secret. Anakin's robotic arm affixed, R2 and 3PO standing in witness. The scene, blissfully, blessedly free of any more dialogue. Word from our sponsors. We will take a quick break for now. Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? Anakin Skywalker sure does, and the helpful folks at State Farm do too. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home making off with your new flat-screen TV before you can talk to Django about the clones. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. And now, back to binge mode. Dooku's Separatist plot and Palpatine's true plan. Palps is, of course, not the Emperor yet, well on his way, however. But just look at this guy. Yeah, he is giving off some extremely strong supreme leader vibes uh-huh. in his billowing cape, sitting on his desk chair that is like actually throne size yes. in a vast office. That's all red and black. <laughs> lecturing to the assembled. My negotiations will not fail, uh-huh. he says, and he means it. Oh, yeah. While the Jedi never mistake his severity, they have zero inkling, none. Yeah. None. 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 Zero. We'll get to them in a bit. That he's controlling both primary factions. Dooku is his agent. The Separatists are part of this. Everything is the opposite of how it seems. His enemy is actually his ally, or more accurately, his pawn. His allies are actually the ones he's trying to fool. He's playing both sides, uh-huh. trying to you know, stir up the chaos. He's propped up his own paper tiger of a foe so that he can manipulate the good guys into giving him the control he needs to enact the totality uh-huh. of his vision. It's Duplicity by design. It's terrifying. Yes. And it is brilliant. It it's is. amazing. It works. His plan is amazing. It works. When he navigates Padme into the Jedi's care, 
think of all that he's achieving when he's doing that and all that he already had his hands in just to get to the point where that was possible. Mm-hmm. He's sequestering a political rival who is determined to oppose the army he needs. Remember, that's why Padme is on Coruscant, to vote against granting the powers to procure this army. He's moving the being who will ripen the things that he needs to develop inside of Anakin, that love and then that fear, that anger, that hate, into his one-day apprentice's direct oversight and domain. He's still sanctioning from afar the assassination attempts that Dooku needs to grant the Trade Federation. They're the ones who Mm -hmm. want Padme killed in order to secure the allegiance from them for the Separatist cause. And he's creating continued factions within the Jedi Order. He's isolating Anakin from his master and his mentors. And he's doing it all, all of it, under the guise of helping and saying that he wants to keep Padme safe. Safe from a threat that he's creating. It is masterfully orchestrated and enacted. The thought of losing you, he says. And he's just chewing on the scenery for like, It's amazing. 20 minutes in each instant. Palpy is truly my favorite part of the prequels. He is having a blast in every scene. It's unbearable. (laughs) I feel like every time he speaks, he's thinking, I'm going to pause just long enough at needless points in my sentence and introduce a nonsensical syntax just to give them a chance about 75 times per conversation to suss out what I'm really up to. Will they be able to? No, 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 no. Meditate on this, I will. Okay, well, let me know when you're done meditating <laughs> on this. Yoda keeps going, I've been meditating on and then nothing ever nothing. comes of it. Not a lot of follow through. Come on, man. <laughs> when Anakin goes to Palpatine to get his help convincing Padme to leave for Naboo and safety, we can see that clearly this has been an ongoing relationship, a kind mm-hmm. of mentor-mentee relationship. Yep. The Chancellor credits Anakin's patience. Anakin credits him in turn for helping him. In time, you will learn to trust your feelings, Palpatine said. He did Anakin. say that he was going to watch his career with great interest. Yeah. Then you will be invincible. Uh. Anakin, too eager to have his ego stroked and to get Padme to safety, doesn't seem alarmed by what personal ambition might lie beneath a statement like that. Nor Palpatine's ensuing declaration that he sees Anakin becoming the greatest Jedi of all time, even more powerful Yoda. Nor the fact that Palpatine is consistently telling him the opposite of the things that his Jedi mentors and teachers are telling him to do. Yes. Yes. That's the key. Yes. That's the key. And it's all happening in view not only of force recognition, but just, you know, hearing, seeing. Now, Padme is a strong, strong voice in the Senate, but with her off the board, who does she select to... Step into her shoes. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you. Representative Binks! Hello! (laughs) Who Padme can't wait to finish chatting with and who Palpatine navigated into voting position knowing he'd be able to engineer the desired outcome once he did. Hey, for more on Jar Jar Binks, Mm -hmm. check out our Jar Jar Binks character study podcast. Yes. Now, again, let me just, as a way to defend Jar Jar here. Yes, Jar Jar unfortunately was crucial in helping the emperor rise to power. You was hate manip- to see it. Was easily manipulated by him. Let me just say this. One, Padme, why are you making Jar Jar a senator? Like, why is he in the top hundred of your list of people? <laughs> he's a junior representative. 
He's Again, in the power structure already. How can we at least be like, hey, uh, what are the economic considerations? You know, like what can we just like get a quick pop quiz so I know that he understands like the landscape of galactic politics? And then two, as mentioned, Palpatine has pulled the wool over many people's eyes. Many very powerful people, force users who should absolutely have seen this coming. Jar Jar is no match for this kind of maneuvering. Mm -hmm. No match at all. So I feel bad for Jar Jar in this. He was set up to fail. He was. It's an interesting adjustment. Again, whole Jar Jar pod for all of you. But to account for the mass loathing of Jar Jar by saying, let's make Make him him a fall guy. The cat's paw. Yeah. Yeah. You get to hate him for what he did, but also hopefully you pity him a little bit. Interesting strategy. Palpatine is counting in many ways on the mass reluctance to challenge established norms. And we see it when Padme arrives back on Naboo, consults with new Queen Jamila, who says that they must maintain faith in the Republic. Uh The day we stop believing democracy can work is the day we lose it, setting up Padme's line in Revenge of the Sith. So this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. Just feels like a day on Twitter right now, man. You know? But who's killing it? Well, more than a full hour into the film, great pacing in Attack of the Clones, more than a full hour into the film, we arrive at last on Geonosis, thanks to Obi-Wan's mean cutter. He's got that nice, like, Mariano Rivera-esque cutter whipping the little tracking device (laughs) onto Slave One. Tough times for Mariano Rivera right now. Yes. (laughs) Tracking Jango's ship, and there at last, Again, in more than an hour into the film, we meet Count Dooku, a.k.a. Darth Tyrannus, a fallen Jedi and Darth Sidious's new apprentice after Darth Maul's quote-unquote death, really cut in half and still alive. Dooku is chatting with Viceroy, Newt Gunray, much like Jar Jar, role considerably reduced but still present in the story. Trade Federation still there, refusing to sign Dooku's treaty until Senator Amidala has been killed. The plot is beginning to reveal itself, not only to Obi-Wan, but to us. We see Dooku maneuvering, recruiting more factions, including the banking clan, to his separatist cause and to the Jedi-destroying formation of what he hopes will be an incomparable droid army. And this is before Order 66 and the clone army come into play on that side. And speaking of armies, after the plot on Geonosis begins to unveil itself— Palpatine and his stooges meet with the Jedi and some senatorial figures, including Bail Organa, who staunchly oppose the clone army, yep. and Jar Jar, who hears Palpy say that they need a senator who will recommend emergency powers for Palpatine. I need to cut through the red tape. Who will have the courage, if only Senator Amidala, who would definitely never do it, who were here. Will, who will have the bravery and the courage to save the Republic? <laughs> to save the Republic. <laughs> They're all clay in his hands, including, as we will see, Dooku. Though he seems quite formidable when we meet him. Yes. Holding Obi-Wan captive, unfazed by Obi-Wan's traitor barbs, Dooku. Oh, Obi-Wan, I tried to stop them. Uh, How This is an outrage. You're being treated deplorably. Come join me. Offer, by the way. I'll slice fruit for you. Have you thought about joining the Sith? Great Dental? 
<laughs> Dooku tells Obi-Wan not to be so sure that Qui-Gon wouldn't have joined him. And as we discussed in our Phantom Menace pod, there's some indications of the wider canon that Qui-Gon was much more skeptical of the Jedi's role in the political sphere than most, certainly willing to question the philosophy. And also that he may have always known that Anakin would have to enter the dark side in order to come out on the other side on the light and fulfill the prophecy. Qui-Gon's true intentions and ambitions, like so much else in the story, remain masked from some of his peers, even his apprentice Obi-Wan. Some fun Dooku history, by yes. the way. Where did this guy come from? Where has he been? Darth Sidious' new apprentice, who clearly has been around for a while, not uh -huh. a young man. Uh -uh. Dooku is known as one of the infamous Lost 2020 former Jedi who, disillusioned with the Order's philosophy and politics, left. He had always kind of been torn between two worlds and things had always been heading that way. Born to a life of wealth on the planet Serrano, Dooku's father abandoned him as a freak when, as a child, he began to display force powers. The Jedi take him in, training begins. Presaging the eventual split and turn to the Sith, Dooku lived a dual life, even as a Padawan, keeping in contact with his sister, Jenza. Mm. Something strictly forbidden. We don't want that attachment, but he just mm -hmm. couldn't give it up. Like constant sneaking away yeah. for cell phone chats, texts with Jenza. Got a touch of the Lannister in him. It really does, I'll tell you. <laughs> hey, Jenza. All the while, Dooku displayed a fascination, troubling fascination with Sith relics in history and was mentored by Jedi Lean Kastana, who, against Yoda's wishes, collected Sith artifacts. Years later, Dooku's brother Ramil became the ruler of Serrano, and he was a bad leader, and Serrano's people rose in rebellion. With his home planet racked by unrest, Jenza again contacts Dooku for help, and Dooku goes to his Jedi masters and say, we've got to do something, we're supposed to protect law and order on the planet, and they're like, no. So, Dooku decides to go on his own. He overthrows his brother and pissed that the Jedi refused to get involved, leaves the order, becomes Count Dooku, taking on the mantle of his family's title. And, uh, you know, small thing becomes one of the richest men in the galaxy. Sometime after that, he was approached by Darth Sidious and agrees to become the Sith Lord's apprentice. And of course, it's with that wealth that we assume he then funded the massive clone army project. Let's talk about the rule of two for a second. Rule of two. So the infamous and infamously fuzzy rule of two, the Sith philosophy, which states only two Sith Lords, a master and an apprentice can exist at once, is something worth exploring. Once it was more like an agreed upon custom and less of a rule, but this was eventually codified by Darth Bane. Darth Bane was the last Sith Lord to survive the cataclysmic war between the Jedi and the Sith, which took place before the events of the prequels. Now, Darth Bane realized that infighting betrayal was an inextricable part of the dark side of the force and that this made the Sith inherently less unified and therefore less powerful as a team than the Jedi. So therefore, Bane created this rule in the hopes of lessening that self-inflicted damage by Sith infighting. Now, things get a little weird when considering what exactly counts mm -hmm. here as a Sith being a Sith. Darth Sidious' apprentice was Darth Maul. Even while Dooku was carrying out Sidious's will in regards mm -hmm. to the clone army and doing other various things for Darth Sidious. When Maul perishes, not really, of course, right. we find out later, Sidious officially took Dooku, who was plainly much more powerful than mm -hmm. Maul, as his apprentice. Dooku, meanwhile, goes on to violate the rule 
multiple times, Mm -hmm. as seen in the Clone Wars series. Yes. Tons of Dooku in Clone Wars. Lots of Dooku in Clone Wars, and this guy is breaking the rules all the time. Collecting assassins. Takes the Knight Sister Ventress as his apprentice, who's awesome. Yeah. Later takes Maul's brother Savage Opress as his apprentice, and as we saw here in Geonosis, tries to recruit Obi-Wan. Oh, hey, we would think about joining up. <laughs> now, in the first case with Ventress, Sidious senses the threat and orders Dooku to kill Ventress as a way to prove his loyalty. In the second case, Ventress, who survived, by the way, tries to use Opress to kill Dooku, only to have him turn on her and Dooku. So, then, I think perhaps the best way to think about the rule of two is... It's a rule specifically designed to keep the Master Sith Mm -hmm. as free as possible from all possible threats from below him. For instance, Sidious was free to have Maul as his official apprentice and have Dooku on the side doing all sorts of things. And that was not a problem. But if Dooku goes out, right, Right. and has Ventress and then also has Opress, well, now I'm going to have to force you to kill your apprentice or whoever this is working with you. I think so I think the way to think about this is it's really a protection plan for the master Sith less for everybody else. Three follow-up sure thoughts. One, that is completely true. It stems as Lucas and other Star Wars canon creators have said from the acknowledgement that the Sith would just have kept killing each other if there were too many of them mm-hmm. protecting the person in charge. But it also is actually intended to facilitate constant succession, right? What the path of succession will always look like. You as the master have your apprentice. And by formalizing the rule of two, you know your apprentice is going to have a little Sally on the side (laughs) and kill you. But that that protects the power of the Sith. It ensures that only when the apprentice is actually more powerful than the master can he kill him or can they kill them and take over. However, part of that is an acknowledgement that you need numbers to actually do any of the things you're trying to do. So look at Grievous. Yeah. The difference there between an apprentice and an assassin, a tool. Well, some would say, you know, Grievous technically didn't have the force. Right, so right yeah. exactly. So that's like not alarming, right? right, right? Not because he's not, a, he's collecting lightsabers right. and is a lightsaber wielder, but he's not force sensitive. He is not one with the force. He's not going to become a Sith. He's not part of the hierarchy or the ultimate like leadership plan there. Lead an army. Get the droids going. Help me win my war. Ventress was a Jedi Padawan. Yeah. Was Force-sensitive. Trained in the ways of the Force is a threat because of that. And so you want your apprentice to be able to help you, to be strong enough to be able to help you, but But not not strong enough to overthrow you unless gets to the point of such strength that overthrowing you is actually the right thing for Mm -hmm. the Sith Order. And then that gets to the third point, which is Palpatine, despite the rule of two all the way back to Darth Bane— Palpatine, Sidious, had the rule of one. Mm-hmm. He wanted to introduce the rule of one, this, his Sith doctrine. I'm all that we need. Right. And all of this is just about my strength and my eternal power. When Palpatine in Revenge of the Sith is talking to Anakin about Darth Plagueis and the pursuit of immortality, that's not just about wooing Anakin. That's also about a belief in his own eternal strength, 
and presence. I don't need right. to ensure a power structure to have my replacement be stronger than me. I'm going to be here forever. And that blindness, of course, is what leads, just as all hubris mm-hmm. does, to the self-fulfilling prophetic nature of the thing that he didn't think was going to happen or that he was actively trying to combat his apprentice killing him is exactly, of course, what happens with Vader. All of this is to say that when Yoda exclaims at the end of The Phantom Menace, it always must be two, a master and apprentice, that is somewhat misleading because clearly, if you look at certainly through the Clone Wars period, Uh you have dark side of the force force users that are out there generally aligned with the Sith cause. Yes, and it's much like so many other factors in the story. It's worth thinking about that and the oversimplified read of that from both the Sith perspective and the Jedi perspective because just like with attachment or any of these other things that we're talking about, the Jedi's overly reductive read Mm. on something is often the heart of the error. Oh, only two? That's two. That's how we'll think about it. Not seeing— Let's find the other one and we're good. The totality of the possibilities. We can say for sure that the Death Star enters the story here. Mm -hmm. After Dooku and his legions realize that the battle is lost, the Geonosians shelter in the catacombs, but not before handing over the plans to Dooku for the Death Star. The Jedi must not find our designs for the ultimate weapon. If they find out what we're planning, we're doomed. I love that he then engages the hologram portion of the drive so that— he could actually, let's just make sure the fight. Yeah, okay, good. It's on there. We're good. Yeah. Helpful for us, though. Yeah. When Dooku returns to his master, we hear Sidious call him by the name Tyrannus and say everything is going as planned. His schemes, his secrets have all unfolded the way that Palpy wanted them to. Including uh-huh. his ability to secure an army via emergency senatorial powers. Power he went a very long way towards building here, as we discussed at length in our Jar Jar pod. Good old Representative Binks steps up in Amidala's absence to inadvertently do the exact opposite of what she would have wanted to, give immediately emergency powers to the Supreme Chancellor, thereby concentrating all the levers of power in the hands of one man. And she is lapping it up, baby. <laughs> lapping it. it up. This is the moment he has planned for. His army, right, finally revealed to the world and revealed to the Jedi at the exact moment when they would accept that army with as little questions as possible. His power, his control, allowing him to conduct his Sith efforts in the shadows for now, but use real power out in the open quite soon. He says he, I love democracy. (laughs) He says he loves the Republic. He says he will lay down his power once the crisis is over. The second I don't need it anymore. The very moment it is over. Take the Death Star, use it as a man cave. It will be done. The very moment I do not need it any, like a bong, you know, like (laughs) I will return it to you. And if you feel like you've heard all this before, it's because you have. There are any number of real world precedents for such result. Ancient Rome, which is obviously a big time inspiration for this story, had the uh, first Roman emperor, Octavian, who, by the way, called himself the first citizen, didn't want to call himself the emperor, kind of make it more palatable for people. Uh, The Roman Republic had before this an elected position called the dictator, and this was the before the term took on a pejorative connotation as it has in modern usage, which essentially involved 
one person taking emergency powers offered by the Senate in times of military crisis to elevate someone not currently in charge of head of the government to basically be in charge for a short period of time. Theoretically and by precedent, the dictator had to step down once a crisis was solved, unless he received a special <laughs> extension after six months it expired. As Of course, Palpatine promised. I promise. He swears. He swears. And that practice worked well for centuries. Dictators occasionally popped into office to deal with some stress point or another, mm-hmm. and some became famous, beloved throughout Roman history. One such man, Cincinnatus. Huge, good bang, old huge Cincinnatus. Bengals fan. Good Still old believes C- in Andy Dalton. Good old Cincinnatus <laughs> as our, uh, I love, yes, Cincinnatus. He gave it back, man. That's the guy who gave it back. Purported to have served as dictator twice, two decades apart, peacefully returned power to the normal Senate after dealing with the troubled situation at hand. But eventually, the system weakened. Individual yeah. dictators began to test the limits of their growing power. I'll never forget the HBO series Rome. Fucking all-timer. Mark so Antony, good. played by our good friend James Purfoy. Like good old Cincinnati. <laughs> Some of the finest art ever put to film is uh, James Purfoy's Mark Antony bathing in the nude out in the open. As, as a slave shaves his body. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! This problem reached its peak with You might have heard of him, Julius Caesar, Mm -hmm. first century BC, when he was such a popular and successful commander that he was named dictator not for six months, but uh, here are your emergency powers. You can do this for 10 years. Help us restore the Republic after a series of military excursions. And he held total control of both the government in Rome and the army in Rome for as long as the war lasted, which... Sounds a lot like our good friend, Sheev Palpatine. Yep. Alas, Sheev stayed alive for decades longer while Caesar was stabbed before that 10-year time span was even halfway through by his good friend, Edmure Tully, Blackjack Randall. Son of a bitch. Prince Philip. <laughs> Brutus. <laughs> Tobias Menzies. <laughs> Though like Caesar with Brutus, Sheev was ultimately in the end killed by a pal. And then, of course, we have Germany. So after the Reichstag fire in 1933, an attack that Hitler used to blame his enemies and seize more power for himself from scared government officials, just like Sheev, Germany passed a series of laws, most notably the Enabling Act, which gave Hitler emergency powers for a span of four years in order to defend Germany from socialists and other nefarious powers that Hitler would tell his people was trying to tear the country apart, and it was eventually renewed twice. Those real-world corollaries— That's the stuff that is Mm -hmm. really strong in this movie, in Attack of the Clones, and in this part of the story. How Palpatine became the emperor, that's the good stuff. Yeah. That actually is. And that's why, again, we say that if you just pared back some of that overly saccharine, yearn-first Padme-Anakin stuff, and you focused more on this, the movie would be, we would remember it differently than we do. We're not the only ones who can't fully focus on what Palpatine is up to, though. The Jedi oh Order. God. And their confounding ignorance. I will say this. At least it is carries through in Clone Wars. It carries through in, at least it is a theme. Oh, you yeah. You know, like, it's at this point not an accident. No, that's what's concerning about yeah. it. Yeah. You know, everyone makes mistakes. 
We're keepers of the peace, Mace Windu tells Palpatine in the film's opening moments. Not soldiers. But can you keep the peace if you're not able to properly identify what is threatening that peace? That is the question. When Palpatine asks Yoda if he thinks that it will come to war, knowing all the while that it will because he's designed it to be so— and that he's just playing with his food here, just mocking his yeah. opponent, trolling him to his face. It's amazing. The wise master says, the dark side clouds everything. Impossible to see, the future is. Now, on the one hand, it is hard not to feel that this just isn't good enough it's from the Jedi. Enough. Ten years have passed since the end of Phantom Yoda's Menace. still meditating on it. <laughs> Ten years, a decade, since Yoda and Mace Windu stood it. there. He's still thinking about it. And said, the Sith are back. Maybe. And yet they're no closer to unearthing the truth and identifying the real horror that awaits. That is confounding. But on the other hand, it is incumbent on us to check ourselves a little bit in moments like this and ask what would really be possible for the Jedi Mm -hmm. or for anyone. The Jedi are immensely powerful and wise, yes. But they're not omnipotent beings. They're humans or at least humanoids. Human-like. Intelligent and sentient creatures. They're mortal. They're flawed. That means they are fallible. Exactly. They have limits. And as frustrating as that can be in moments like this where you say, how could you not see this? It's also actually part of their appeal and part of what allows us as viewers of a movie or readers of a book or whatever it might be when you're consuming a fantasy story like this, it allows us to see ourselves in those characters. Think about Deathly Hallows and the agony of Harry discovering Dumbledore's numerous failings. Something shattered there in that moment for him and for readers. But Something else ultimately is formed in its place. And if you're putting that vase back together, the cracks, the lines, the dings, the dents, those are actually all way truer to life than the pristine, flawless thing that stood there before. And this is one of the reasons why we stand so hard for The Last Jedi. The willingness to ask that question. Are we sure that the Jedi are good? That's not blasphemous to us. That is important because the best heroes— are not actually gods. Even in a story built around the dark side and the light side, the heroes that you can relate to and want to root for are mortal, and they're compelling when they struggle or live in the That's gray. good storytelling. Yes. That's interesting storytelling. Yes. To have characters within a world reflect on the inconsistencies of their world, that's interesting. That's good storytelling. Yes. That's more depth than the Jedi are good, the Sith are bad. That exactly. is great. What's more, regardless of what Yoda's statement indicates about the Jedi's failings to identify the Sith plan, it speaks to something elemental about life. Future is not said. It isn't written, despite the prophecies. And that's ultimately a good thing because it means even a story anchored in part around a prophecy and drenched in the weight of destiny, it recognizes our capacity to change events, to have agency in that. But also, like, come on. Yes. When Padme asks who's responsible for blowing up her ship and killing Corday and almost taking her out, Mace says, you know, Jedi intelligence says uh, disgruntled uh, spice miners on the moons of Naboo. And she f- says flat out, hey, what about that dude Dooku? Incredible. Currently leading the Separatists Incredible. who used to be a Jedi. Should we look at it? Mundi says, well, Dooku's a political idealist, not a murderer. <laughs> Count Dooku was once a Jedi, Mace tells her, as if that has ever meant that right. someone could not then go bad and right. commit murders. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> you wonder how Anakin becomes Darth Vader. 
He couldn't assassinate anyone. It's not in his character, he continues. This speaks to something more concerning than failing to read signs or fully use the force or gain illuminating intelligence. A absolutely rigid view of the nature of sentient beings writ large and an unwillingness to accept that people can change due to circumstances, due to things that happen outside of their control. Just not properly seeing what people are capable of or why. It's not ultimately dissimilar from assessing whether a more relaxed and open-minded view of emotion and connection would have kept Anakin in the fold, you know, like making him feel less ashamed of the things that he's naturally feeling perhaps would have kept him from going bad. But for certain, Senator, in grave danger you are. Thank you, Yoda. My ship just exploded while I was walking down the ramp. Thank you for that. This is astonishing. It's like... (laughs) expired the milk was yeah, yeah I, I, i've been having diarrhea for three hours yoda you're a little late after the assassination attempt you're in grave danger yeah i, I get but i must say again oh my god yoda's like 900 i think you know he's forgetting his cane a lot you know like let's just make sure that he's with it are you pulling a retire bitch on yoda He's 900. <laughs> He's nine fucking hundred. He's not the man he was at 400. <laughs> or even 750. Even 750. He's just not as sharp as he once was. <laughs> He's 900 when he dies, by the way. So he's okay, 800. So he's like eight and change. Excuse me. <laughs> late 800. He's late eight. Early eight. Sorry, I don't want to add. It doesn't look a day over 850. <laughs> <laughs> Obi-Wan comes the closest to gathering anything that resembles actual intelligence. First, he gets the saber dart that the bounty hunter, who will later learn is Jango, used to kill Zam before she could reveal her backer to him and to Anakin. And while this sets Obi-Wan on a course of discovery, it puts Anakin and Padme exactly where Palpatine ultimately wants them. For Anakin, that's with Padme, in a vulnerable position. For Padme, it's away from the Senate and the vote. And once again, the Jedi play into Sidious's hands here. Until caught, her killer is, Yoda says. Our judgment she must respect. Why? Why? Yeah, why? Why? <laughs> what, what have you guys been doing? Give me one win that you guys have. This is like a pitching coach where like every prospect got Tommy John surgery. And then he's like, no, listen. Do long toss and your pitch toss. counts 180. Trust me. Yeah, just keep going. <laughs> I know it hurts, but you got to push through it. <laughs> Yoda Jedi splaining about this matter actually leads to Mace suggesting that Palpatine talk to Padme directly <laughs> to sway her. They are not just failing to identify the wolf in sheep's clothing. They are inviting the wolf into the sheep pen. And Obi-Wan, again, to his credit, pushes back with Yoda and Mace on whether Anakin is ready to handle this assignment alone. He does not at any point doubt Anakin's skills, which are undeniable. But he's worried about his arrogance. He's worried about his temperament. What kind of harm his hubris could cause. And it's an interesting bit of role reversal from Phantom Menace when Mace and Yoda pushed back on Mm Qui-Gon's insistence that Anakin must be trained, that he was the chosen one. Yoda notes here that arrogance has become a problem for the Jedi in mass. Yes. While Mace says that if the prophecy is true, only Anakin can bring the balance that they seek. And it's worth thinking about what has changed that would spark this kind of shift in their dispositions, given how little new information they actually have. The acknowledgement of the rise of the Sith, yes, but what else? What have they seen from Anakin and others? What clouded path do they 
like Palpatine, think that they might be sending him down. Obi-Wan's fact-finding mission takes him to his old pal Dex's diner, where Jawa juice in hand, he learns that the dark that killed Zam came from Kamino, where the Kaminoan cloners reside. Dex explains that it's about the cuts. Look, look at these little notches on the side. And he says, I should think that you Jedi would have more respect for the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And this is a key idea, key bit of setup for this. Symbols often mask true intentions, but sometimes focusing too heavily on them allows other things to go unrecognized. And these yes. comments in the scene apply to much more than the dart. It's not just that the Jedi can't uncover a secret, any secret. It's that they don't always know what they're supposed to look for, what right. they're supposed to look at in the first place. We also can't help but recall here, the wisdom makes a good king exchange between Tommen and Tywin in season four in Thrones over yes. the body of uh, <laughs> of his brother Joffrey. Um, a wise king knows what he knows and what he doesn't, Tywin says. And in a way, that's what Yoda was saying earlier, too. And of course, Tywin was saying that because it suited him to hold Tommen in his power. But it's key. Knowledge, information, secrets revealed. That doesn't amount to much if you don't know what it means or mm -hmm. what to do with it. Mm -hmm. To Camino, beyond the Outer Rim. Twelve parsecs past the Richie Maze. Ah, but how to find it? Because it's not in the Jedi Temple archive charts. And Jedi Master and Chief Librarian, Jocasta New, is certain that means it's not real. If an item does not appear in our records, it does not exist. Well, that's kind of exactly the thing that yeah. Dex was just hinting at, right? Knowledge only extends as far as your willingness to acknowledge that knowledge doesn't extend very far at all. Now, amid our praise for Obi-Wan, let's dispense some critiques <laughs> where warranted here. Our dude sees the gravitational pull, but cannot deduce that the planet is there. This is tough. Even if it's not in the archive. Yikes. Literally has to ask Yoda and the and, collection and of like, small children. like 20 kids. <laughs> A youngling gets it immediately. Let me just say one thing about that scene. Yeah. 20 blindfolded children with miniature lightsabers yeah. spinning around in circles. Like, listen, I'm not going to get involved in Jedi training. They've been doing it for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Can we get a little bit more space between yeah. these kids? Like, someone's going to get their head chopped off. You know how, like, a middle school dance, you need to stand. <laughs> what, what, what's Hopper's rule about how wide the door right. needs to be open? We need something like that. We don't need 20 kids in a room doing this at once with literally, like, laser swords. That's all. It's a good note. It really is. So, as the astute youngling notes, Someone erased it. Yoda says, truly wonderful the mind of a child is. <laughs> Creepy. Delighting in the uncluttered worldview that allowed this youngling to see what had transpired. But why didn't anyone else know that this had happened? Yoda and Obi-Wan realized that only a Jedi could have erased this from within the Jedi Temple, which means someone close to them is engaging in a dangerous scheme. They call it dangerous. They call it disturbing. And it is. But we end on Yoda saying... Meditate on this, I will, of course. <laughs> like, at some point, the time to meditate has passed. And Yoda, my guy, we have arrived at that it's moment. It's been 10 years since the Sith revealed themselves. The call is coming from inside the house, Yoda. Let's see some hustle. Obi-Wan shows plenty of hustle, plenty of stick to on Kamino, where he meets with the cloners who are like, Man, we never thought you guys would show up. It's you, a guy in a brown You're robe. just a guy you in a brown You must be the one. We've got your 200,000 soldiers. Are you here to take them? No paperwork, no ID, 
Don't even know the name of— Stay tuned. We're going to go into much deeper detail about the clone army in today's Jedi Temple, so stay tuned for that. But in terms of today's theme, the effect of the we were beginning to think you weren't coming line is chilling. Yes. Obi-Wan has stumbled onto a secret that has been going on clearly for quite a while. The scheme has deep, deep, deep tangled roots. It didn't just start yesterday. Don't let that stop you from using a real name, by the way, as you pop into your Nampod, Obi-Wan. Don't wonder who might be watching or listening or receiving this information down the road. Obi-Wan learns that Jedi, Sifo-Dyas, placed the order for a clone army for the Republic. Again, more on this later. And then learns about Jango Fett and his unaltered clone son, Boba. As we get our first glimpse of the growth-accelerated docile clones, we see their armor, a touch of the Boba, Jango, Mandalorian, bounty hunter aesthetic, to be sure, but also... That looks like early versions of Stormtrooper armor. Mm -hmm. Unmistakable. This will be the Emperor's army. But how, we don't know yet. Django tells Obi-Wan that he was recruited, not by Sifo, but a band called Tyrannus. Mm. Darth Tyrannus, a.k.a. Count Dooku. Now, this is a damning moment. Maul has been off the board for 10 years, right? Yes. Meaning that Dooku has been operating as Palpatine's apprentice for that long and then some ways longer still. Right. The Sith are still operating the shadows. Yes. So it's not fair to say, imagine not knowing the name Darth Vader because the circumstances are not the same. But the Sith are just doing a much better job compared to the Jedi. One of the two most important members of the operation who also happens to be the face of the Separatist movement isn't known to the Jedi by his Sith name. This is astounding. It's not like he's in hiding. He's the leader of the Separatist movement, a former Jedi. It's very tough. (laughs) It's very tough hearing the name Tyrannus there, and it's just like nothing. Also, no effort after to say, let's look into that. Yeah, should we? Let's follow up on that lead. We're meditating on it. (laughs) When Obi-Wan calls Mace and Yoda before his pretty dope fight with Jango on the slick metal roofs of the Kamido structures. Gotta say, Jango holding his own. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, literally genetic, but much like his clone son Boba son <laughs> I love it. the aggressive son kind of goes out like a punk in the end but sure. here, here he holds his own I like when he like latches on with the arm spikes to, to hold on in the middle Obi-Wan on this call says that he has a strong feeling that Django is the bounty hunter they're seeking and it's like because your feeling be strong because you trace the murderous dart to the planet where you then Found him. You know that he's a bounty hunter. He's by wearing trade. Mandalorian armor. You <laughs> see his armor in the open closet, and then you see him nudge his clone son and say, "Go close the closet door so he doesn't see the armor." I wonder if any of that could be a sign. And also, he's a huge dick to you and admitted to being on Coruscant. A strong feeling. Clear your mind must be. Yoda tells him, "If you are to discover the real villains behind this plot." What? (laughs) It's good advice, though. And one that all the Jedi should take, but also advice that's proving utterly insufficient so far. They discuss the mystery of Sifo-Dyas and the absence to any of their knowledge of the sanctioning of such a clone army order. Blind we are, Yoda says. At least he understands it. Like, that's honestly like the best, one of his best moments in the movies. Self-awareness here at last. If creation of this clone army we could not see, and he is obviously... Right. It's one thing to have a little tiff about whether the Jedi Temple archives are up to date, but 200,000 clones with another million on the way? Beyond the Outer Rim or not, 
failing to be aware of that is a damning, damning miss. Mace knows it too, and he knows what it means. Their ability to use the Force is diminishing. And this is fascinating in so many ways. First, Palpatine's strategy hinges, at least for now, not on operating in plain sight and on attacking, not on the offensive, but on depriving the enemy of confidence in their power. Fascinating. And not only can he do that by operating in the shadows, he has to do it by operating in the shadows because the key is to delay their awareness of how his scheme is unfolding. Timing is the key for his scheme. All of the things that are going to happen must happen in the right order at the right time for the dominoes to fall the way Palpatine needs. And that is the other thing. The Jedi don't realize that their force sensitivity is waning because they can feel it, because they can sense it. They realize it because of series of events are brought to their attention. They realize it when it's too late, when their foes' advances have already necessitated this acknowledgement. And Mace suggests that they tell the Senate. But Yoda thinks that for now, the fact that their weakness is largely a secret is an asset. The Sith know, yes, but if they broadcast it widely, multiply our adversaries. That I actually agree with. But there is this, it's the Death Star flaw. Yes. And it's not changing the plans when you rebuild it. Yes. As Anakin is masquering the Tusken Raiders on Tatooine, Yoda senses the suffering of the Chosen One. He tells Mace, something terrible is happening. And this is encouraging. Being able to sense a disturbance in the Force from that far away is good. But what do the Jedi do now with this information? How do they look to nurture Anakin to guide him after what he suffered through here to make sure that he doesn't turn to the dark side of the Force or even just leave the Jedi Order? This is the same group who, when watching Obi-Wan get attacked by a hologram, and this is incredible, Uh Obi-Wan arrives on Geonosis. Mm-hmm. He's sending a message back. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, just want you to know that I've arrived on the planet and I've, I see a bunch of Federations. Oh, my God! Right? Yeah. Yoda says <laughs> to this, transmission cuts off. Uh-huh. His immediate response. More happening on Geonosis, I feel, than has been revealed. Oh! You think? <laughs> really? <laughs> Obi-Wan literally attacked <laughs> while you looked on. Something about Federation ships. What's like a comp And you're for like, this? I think something's going on on Geonosis? Yoda returns home at night to his what? hut and sees the missus in bed with a Dagobah local. Know, and he's right? like, something going on here, I believe. I think <gasps> more happening in my marriage than has been revealed. I would meditate on this. <laughs> When Dooku flat out tells Obi-Wan that the Republic is under Sith control, Obi-Wan says, and again, that Jedi rigidity, mm-hmm. that's not possible. The Jedi would be aware of it. <laughs> but they're not. Right. You just found an army that is was started being constructed 10 years ago that nobody had any idea about. Right. And you're here being like, uh, I wouldn't believe that. We would know about it. Come on. As Dooku tells Obi-Wan that the dark side has clouded their vision and Darth Sidious has taken hundreds of senators under his control— Obi-Wan says, I don't believe you. (laughs) These guys need a lot of proof. When the Sith tell you who they are, just listen. I think that instead of being Jedi, they should all be investigative journalists because they're like, they're not reporting anything until they have multiple sources confirming Multiple. But (laughs) it's like, maybe look into it. Hey, uh, so Count Dooku, who turns out is actually bad and is like leading the Separatists and maybe a Sith, at least he said he was. I don't know. He said, like, they're controlling, like, hundreds of senators. Also, they we previously, someone mentioned something about some 
Was it a Darth Tyrannus? <laughs> Amazing. Yoda and Mace watch Palpatine's coronation with resigned amusement, with Yoda setting off to assess the Chancellor's new clone army and Mace heading off for Geonosis to help Obi-Wan. And they each get up to a nice bit of business on Geonosis. First, Mace and the Jedi with some flash, albeit at great cost, a lot of lost lives here. And then Yoda arriving with the clone forces just in time to swing the battle and run Dooku and the Federation droids out of town. Anakin's Jedi vows are... Sorely tested when Padme mm-hmm. falls out of the ship into the sand dune. He hates sand, Jason. I'm not sure I if you've heard. Sand. But Obi-Wan eventually convinces him to stay focused and together they take on Dooku, eventually with Yoda coming in to their aid. Now, this is an interesting sequence because mm-hmm. there are some diehard OG Star Wars trilogy fans who don't like the choreography of the prequel lightsaber fights. It's too balletic. It's right. too operatic. It's not as this really could be a sword fight in Arthurian legend and it just so happens that it's a lightsaber instead of a a steel broadsword. This is spinning in the air, right? All sorts of tricks and trinkets. But there are a lot of people who watch this and say, this is fucking Yeah, I like dope. I this is what I wanted. It's great. I like forget the fact that It's great. Forget the fact that like, you know, a new hope, Obi-Wan seemed basically nailed to the floor. (laughs) Old at that point. Old at that point. But still, you know, like Count Dooku is like 70-something? And he's, like, doing flips and shit. It's true. But, like, I'm willing to forget that. This is cool. This is what you want. You want to feel like, oh, I get it. The Jedi's are fucking badasses. Yeah. It's fun to watch. It's it absolutely is fun to watch. Fun. Anakin is quickly fried with some Force lightning, and Obi-Wan hangs in for a minute longer, but only just. And then Anakin dives in to save Obi-Wan in a moment of absolute mortal peril, and we get a pretty nifty duel in the dark here. This part is... I think this is actually even more than the... Dooku Yoda fight that follows a moment later. This is maybe my favorite part when the light fades and the lightsabers are the only thing illuminating the sequence and the shadow, the play of the light on their faces. And this results in Dooku severing Anakin's arm, foreshadowing both Anakin's eventual severing of Dooku's appendages and then his head in Revenge of the Sith. And of course, foreshadowing or connecting back in real time to the past, Vader cutting off Luke's hand in Empire. And with both Jedi down for the count and all hope seemingly lost, Yoda enters, limping on his cane and ready to kick He's ass. He's ready to go. We get force lightning. We get caved in ceilings and an incredible bout of aerial flips and gymnastics. <laughs> and we also get Yoda's now trademark insights. You know, powerful you have become, Dooku. The dark side I sense in you. Yoda. <laughs> what <are> you- <laughs> My guy. Yeah. The dark side, you sense in him. That's like walking. He's cutting in. off arms with the He's <laughs> walking in on somebody jacking off and being like, Your penis and I sense in your hand. <laughs> yeah, man. Look at him. He's here oh. amongst the separatists. Tough. Murdering. Tough. But Yoda, to his credit, can keep up in a fight. He can really do it. He receives that force lightning from Dooku. Issue any complaint that you want about this movie. But the moment when Yoda wields his lightsaber after decades of fans waiting to see it is fucking awesome. Camera like pans over to the lightsaber size and then he just like puts his hand out, saber smacks into it. Great moment. It's like Roy Hobbs wielding fucking Wonder Boy. Da na na! Thought well you have, my old Padawan, Yoda says. And we're reminded once again here of the ties that bind these Force users. Dooku was Yoda's apprentice. That razor-thin margin between dark and light. 
Yoda saves Anakin and Obi-Wan, but doing so, unfortunately, means letting Dooku escape. Great on. ship, by the way. Cool Much ship. better cool ship. than the chrome Nubian royal starship. This sail ship is dope. By the way, fun moment in the commentary during that Yoda-Dooku fight. George Lucas kind of petulantly saying, recounting how the ILM guys basically had to, like, George basically wanted it to just be a lightsaber. They just get right to it, lightsabers. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the ILM guys are like, man, people have been waiting for this for 20 years. Like, there's got to be force power. you got to do it. And he's like, yeah, but it, it doesn't make any sense. It would be realistic because they would know that they were a match for each other. And it would just be a, like, as soon as Yoda caught the lightning, that would be it. Right. And they thankfully convinced him <laughs> to like let it happen. You know, he's like, it's a, so it's a little unrealistic. It's like, George, they're shooting lightning out of their fingers. One thing you have to remember, though, is... When people first saw Yoda, they hated him. When people first saw R2-D2, they hated, they hated him. It. When people first saw lightsabers, they, they hated it. They hated everything. When people first saw lightsaber duels, they hated him. <laughs> they hated it! <laughs> I need names on who hated R2-D2. I honestly do. Back they on, hated him! Back on Coruscant, Yoda, Obi-Wan, and Mace discuss what has happened and whether Dooku is right about the Senate being under Sidious's control. It doesn't feel right, Obi-Wan says. They're still unwilling to accept the magnitude of the L they have taken. Mm -hmm. I guess that, you know, honestly, that is part of it. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's hard to admit that you fucked up that much when you were fucked up. Like, that is a real, that is something that people can empathize with. Mm -hmm. Yoda says that Dooku has joined the dark side. (laughs) Thanks, Yoda. (laughs) Why don't people, like, stare at him like, hey, do we need to, like, make sure Yoda's okay? (laughs) Yoda's is like, Dooku has joined the dark side. Yeah, I know. He chopped my Padawan's arm off and fucking tried to kill me. And then said, hey, do you want to join the Sith? (laughs) (laughs) And Mace says they should keep a closer eye on the Senate. Like, just recently got concussed. (laughs) (laughs) At least Yoda is right about one thing. When Obi-Wan says that without the clones, it wouldn't have been a victory, Yoda says, victory. Victory, you say. Master Obi-Wan, not victory. The shroud of the dark side has fallen. Begun. The Clone Wars has. The Wars already has has a name. (laughs) We already named it. It does, and multiple television series will have that name, too. Good, fun series. Jason? Yes. Blind we are. If the creation of this clone army, we could not see. So help illuminate us. Please gather the Padawan learners, head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know, and boy is there a lot, about clone soldiers and the creation of this clone army. In Star Wars Age of Republic, Jango Fett, number one by Marvel Comics, we see a scene in which Darth Tyrannus, K. Count Dooku, says the following. Think of it. A grand army of the Republic, a show of strength and power like the galaxy has never seen. All stemming from you. How many men can claim such a legacy? Tyrannus is addressing Jango Fett, a bounty hunter and Mandalorian battle armor, noted for his deadly skills and his ability to keep a secret. The question of who contracted the Kaminoans to build the clone army is maddeningly, frustratingly opaque. We will get to that 
momentarily. But we do know that Django provided that juicy genetic template for the soldiers. And then he was recruited around the time that the Federation invaded Naboo by Darth Tyrannus on the orders of Darth Sidious, a.k.a. Palpy. Now, <laughs> the existence of the clones would remain hidden for many years until the events of Attack the Clones and Obi-Wan's discovery of their production and training facility on the ocean planet Kamino. Clone soldiers were trained from childhood and subjected to arduous and near-constant program of military training. As part of the production process, clones were genetically altered to enhance obedience and to ramp up their aging rate. This allowed the Kaminoans to have 200,000 soldiers ready for battle with a million more in the pipeline only 10 years after Django's recruitment. Now, the drawback of this was that clones aged out of military usefulness rather rapidly. The issue of what to do with these clone veterans was one the late Republic and later the Empire never successfully grappled with. Initially, Django oversaw the harsh training and production of the first generation of clone soldiers, which required him to remain on Kamino more or less full-time, though he did take jobs, as we saw with Zam. Then came the Battle of Geonosis. Fett, ironically, found himself fighting against his clone sons and was eventually slain by Mace Windu. After Geonosis, during the Clone War period, the Jedi took on oversight of the clones. Council member Shakti, I love Shakti. Great name was sent to Kamino to oversee the training process. Clones were assigned to small units called squads. Squads were then drilled against droid troopers in various scenarios in a customizable battle arena meant to approximate the stresses of war. T, along with experienced bounty hunters LS and particularly Master Chief Brick, assessed the ability of the squads to coalesce into dependable, adaptable fighting units. Clones who showed particular aptitude or skill in a given area were then earmarked for specialized units. There were clone artillery units, medics, cold environment troopers, heavy gunners, pilots, and so on and so forth. The most elite of these were the advanced recon commandos, the ARC troopers, widely considered the best of the best. ARC training emphasized teamwork and put a heavy emphasis on an ability to think outside the box under battle conditions. Clone battle armor was made of interconnected plates of super-hardened plastic material, which was strong but also light enough to allow fast athletic movements. The plates were fastened magnetically to a black temperature-controlled suit, which covered all the body from the neck down. Clones found the Kaminoan-designed armor, which included self-contained life support systems, unwieldy and uncomfortable. Not surprising, considering the Kaminoans had, like, five-foot necks and very long arms and just were not familiar with human biology. As the Clone Wars progressed, however, the armors were redesigned to allow for more customization, and this allowed for the built-in life support system to be jettisoned in favor of a separate breathing apparatus for use only when necessary. Certain elements of the Phase II clone armor, the black bodysuit, the interlocking plastoid plates, form the basis for the more advanced armor worn by the stormtrooper cores of the Imperial era. And that always did the trick against a blaster shot. It really did. Always. Well, I mean, in, Literally never. In theory, a glancing blow, the energy of that is supposed to be dispersed along the plates, but yeah, direct shot. Nothing's going to stop it. Mainline clone troopers were outfitted with standard-issue DC-15 rifles, blaster pistols, pulse grenades, thermal detonators, and, of course, special units had special gear, flamethrowers, heavy guns, etc. All that good stuff. Under the rule of Emperor Palpy, the Galactic Empire eventually transitioned to the Stormtrooper program, which used naturally-born human volunteers and conscripts to fill its ranks. A few late-generation clones did serve, 
in the Stormtrooper Corps. However, in the Attack of the Clones commentary, George Lucas notes that Jango bumps his head on the bulkhead of his ship after the fight with Obi-Wan. This was a callback to the Stormtrooper who very famously bumps his head on the doorframe during a fight in The New Hope. George says in the commentary, that trait gets cloned in. So clearly our clumsy Stormtrooper is one of the few remaining clones from the late Republican era. Of course, the transition from republic and democracy to empire and dictatorship would not have been possible without the infamous Order 66. Mm -hmm. The clones were, after all, a Sith project, and Darth Sidious' main aim was to use these clones to eradicate the Jedi as part of the production process, therefore. Dooku and Sidious had the Kaminoans implant control chips into the brains of each clone. These lay dormant until Order 66 was given, at which point the soldiers turned on their Jedi generals, and without mercy or hesitation, gunned them down. The Kaminoans thought the chip was merely a failsafe, just to guard against a Jedi general or two going rogue and then immediately having control of a very powerful army. This, of course, is not the case. The Jedi came agonizingly close to uncovering Order 60. Agonizingly close. Mm -hmm. In season six of the Clone Wars animated series, a clone trooper with a damaged control chip carries out Order 66 too early and murders his commanding officer, Jedi General Tiplar. An investigation is launched, and Dooku and Master Palpy worry that their scheme might unravel Arc Trooper CT-5555, a.k.a. Fives, at great personal risk, carries out his own investigation, comes to the conclusion that the chips, which look just like brain tumors— were part of a separatist conspiracy in which the Kaminoans were directly involved. Shakti agreed that there was enough there to merit further study and arranges for fives to travel to Coruscant. There, after a meeting with Shakti, Kaminoan scientist Nala Say, and Palpy himself, the Supreme Chancellor frames fives as an assassin. Realizing the breadth of the forces arrayed against him, Five flees into the interior of Coruscant and is eventually killed by Coruscant security forces before, of course, mm-hmm. he could reveal what he knows. <laughs> but even without full knowledge of the chips, the Jedi should have taken Five's warning in the murder of a Jedi by a clone trooper much more seriously. In season seven of Clone Wars, the Jedi Council learns that the clone program was run by one Darth Tyrannus. In Yoda's words, quote, our enemy created an army for us. And yet, (laughs) instead of investigating further, Yoda and Mace Windu decide to cover up Sith involvement in the production of the clones rather than risk public doubts about the Grand Army in the midst of a war against the Separatists. No one, even the Chancellor, may know, Yoda continues hilariously. Valiant men the clones have proven to be. Saved my life and yours they have many times. Believe in them. We must. Extremely (laughs) tough luck for my guy, Yoda. (laughs) wildly tough look for yoda okay then so let's get into the very naughty very hazy eminently unclear question of who actually placed the initial order for a clone army with the kaminoans yes according to attack of the clones and the kaminoans themselves it was jedi master sifo-dyas a member of the council who placed the order Mm mm-hmm The road to empire and galactic war is, of course, paved with good intentions and naive foolhardiness. And perhaps the first of these well-meant disasters belongs to Sifo-Dyas. Years before the Trade Federation invaded Naboo, Dyas became convinced that a devastating war would befall the Republic. And that looming conflict would find the Republic, aside from the Jedi, who again were meant as a peacekeeping force only, basically defenseless. 
Sodius, a member of the council, lobbied for the creation of a standing army of the Republic. And the council found this notion extreme and troubling, and they rejected it and stripped him of his council seat. It's not the first time we've been wrong recently, Obi-Wan would say years later in the Clone Wars series. <laughs> Upon learning of Sifo-Dyas' concerns and the council's response. Won't be the last time either, but It will not be the last. An exact TikTok of what happens next is impossible to assemble. But here's what we think we know. We know that the Kaminoans were contacted by sifo who they believed was representing the Galactic Senate, to build a massive clone army. How Diaz managed to convince the Kaminoans of this or that he was capable of paying for millions of clones out of pocket is unclear. At some point, Darth Sidious, a.k.a. Palpy, discovers sifo scheme, though we don't, again, know how. Intent on taking the army for his own purposes, he had his minion Darth Tyrannus, a.k.a. Dooku, arranged for Diaz's murder by the criminal Pike Syndicate. Tyrannus then, again, no idea how, co-opted the project convinced the Kaminoans to let him take over control, no idea how, recruited Django, erased Kamino from the Jedi archives, and presumably paid for the project out of his own vast wealth. Now, did sifo place the order out of a sincere desire to protect the galaxy? Or was he set up, you know, Jedi extremist with delusions of grand war as a patsy by Dooku Insidious and allowed to take the fall? And why would this even be necessary when clearly... The Kaminoans were not keen on extensive or even cursory background checks <laughs> and were clearly very willing to build huge armies of clones on spec with little to no down payment for whoever showed up. Don't even ask Obi-Wan for ID at the door. They're oh, just like, here's your army. Here's your army. <laughs> they actually give it to Yoda. What is that? In the seventh season of The Clone Wars, former Chancellor Valorum's personal assistant, Silman, who is alive after all these years, reveals to Obi-Wan and Anakin that another Jedi, present when Dias was killed, quote, wanted to be sifo Dias. Whether this means that Dooku impersonated Dias from the very beginning or at some other point or what the hell this even means is unclear because Silman is, of course, <laughs> shortly thereafter force-strangled by Dooku. I love this. While Obi-Wan and Anakin look on. Incredible. Great episode, though. <laughs> Incredible. That was fabulous. One of the most delightful nuggets that you can stumble across on the internet while reading up on this movie is, you know, from our, our sister podcast, The Rewatchables, the, the half-assed internet research corner, mm-hmm. this idea that initially the character in the script was Cedodius, like Sidious, just yeah. deliberately enunciated differently, you know, spelled differently. And that a typo of that in the script that then read as sifo became this entire character. Kind of a mystery how any kind of canon conundrum could ensue from that original plan. Unbelievable how we got here. This is a fascinating mystery. It is a fascinating one. The clones are awesome, and it is really, we're going to obviously do a Clone Wars standalone episode a little bit later on, but one of the real joys of watching the Clone Wars is getting to spend more time with the clones and seeing the different yeah, hairstyles, right. the different tattoo patterns, the names, the way that they develop individual personalities and personas, even though they're all, at it, that point, nominally the same. It makes Order 66 a real tragedy. Yeah. And not only because the Jedi go down like punks. Absolute punks. <laughs> Mel? Yeah. We'll do it. We'll become the greatest podcaster ever! <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I will even learn how to stop people from editing us. You hear that, Isaac? But until then, <laughs> let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this film, Lightning Round Style. You go first. Number one. We must talk about Mace Windu's purple lightsaber. Incredible moments from the commentary when he talks about it, when Sam Jackson talks <sighs> about it. Whether you are a Ravens fan like yours truly, who delighted in seeing that electric lilac popping off the screen, or you're a purist who, for years of your life, believed that lightsabers could only be blue, green, red. That's it. No exceptions. You had to wonder when you saw this, what led to the switch? How we got this purple lightsaber? Well, in an interview on The Graham Norton Show, Samuel Jackson explained the origin. He wanted it. That's the answer. That's the tweet. He wanted it. Quote, we had this big arena, this fight scene with all these Jedi, and they're fighting or whatever. (laughs) Good shit. (laughs) And I was like, well, shit. I want to be able to find myself in this big old scene. So I said to George, you think maybe I can get a purple lightsaber? Incredible flex from Sam Jackson. If only he had uh, also demanded better dialogue between Padme and Anakin. I hate it! (laughs) If only. Jackson also reportedly got bad motherfucker engraved on his lightsaber hilt as a homage, a nod, obviously, to the infamous wallet. Jules's wallet from Pulp Fiction. Delightful. I just want to give a shout out quickly to Dooku's saber, which has that cool curved Mm -hmm. hilt. I really like it. Number two, speaking of bad motherfuckers, while very few souls would dare to argue that Attack of the Clones is the same caliber film as Empire Strikes Back, episode two, the middle film of the prequel trilogy, undoubtedly parallels episode five, the middle film in the original trilogy in various ways, from Luke and Anakin losing their saber hands to the mirror images of the film's closing shots, to the separation of numerous characters into isolated plots. One of the parallels manifested in a tidy bit of retconning. In Clones, Obi-Wan hides from Jango by flying through an asteroid field. Jango's uh, Slave One ship follows him. Jango and Clone's son Boba aboard, but fails to locate Obi-Wan due to some quick thinking that leads Obi-Wan to tuck his ship against the backside of an asteroid, shielding him from enemy view as he flies by. In Empire, of course, Han shelters the Millennium Falcon from the enemy by latching onto a Star Destroyer, only for Boba Fett to later catch him attempting to escape. On the Clones DVD commentary, John Knowles said that Boba succeeded here because his experience with his father and Obi-Wan in the asteroid field made him accustomed to this technique. An interesting bit of reverse synergy here that led to a needless but kind of fun retcon. Number three. Oh my God. From retcons to massacres. Join me, won't you? <laughs> if Anakin killed them all, he not just the did. men, but the women and the children. And it was at that moment that Pat May was like, I'm going to fucking marry this guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What did he leave behind? Okay. Well, a new tradition. That's what. According to Tatooine Ghost. Great name. The 2003 standalone novel from Troy Denning that is now part of Legends canon and centers on Leia and Han after Vader's death, after the fall of the Empire, as they travel to Tatooine. We learn that the Tusken Raiders have absorbed her father, Anakin's atrocities against them into their folklore. Wow. The Tusken Raiders, 
continued to mark the spot where Anakin slaughtered the tribe with sacrifices or valuable possessions, believing that a ghost or a desert demon roamed that land still and needed to be fended off with these offerings lest he return to inflict more horrors upon them. Specifically, beasts are often sacrificed on the site, named hereafter the Valley of the Spirits. Again, lovely. One time, a certain prisoner was offered up. Anakin's childhood pal, Kitster. Remember Kitster from Phantom Menace? He's a good, yeah, the one who goes, let's go play ball. No specific name. Does, doesn't the believe game. in Anakin's ability to win the pod race, and this yeah. is what he gets, but rescued ultimately by Han and Leia. And after the rescue, Kitster offered a very sympathetic view of his childhood friend, which ultimately helped Leia to process who her father had been and who he became. Number four. Original designs and intentions for Count Dooku's character centered on a female Sith. Long before Dooku emerged as a fallen former Jedi, the idea of a witch or a vampire-like woman dominated the brainstorming sessions, and once Christopher Lee emerged as the choice for the role, it seems those ideas didn't go away. They appear to have taken root in the creation of another character, Asajj Ventress, who we'll talk about much more oh, yeah. in our ensuing Clone Wars pod, who's a Dathomirian former Padawan and Night Sister who learned the ways of the Force and became Dooku's apprentice during his reign as Darth Tyrannus, wielding her dual-curved handled red lightsabers to great effect as his go-to assassin. The curved handle, something of a, a trademark for him and his people. It's her Ventress is dope. She's great. It's her, <laughs> and then it's Savage, Maul's brother, and then That's he right. like, tries Savage. to get— Oppress. Oppress, and then he tries to get Obi-Wan. It's like he's just out here recruiting <sighs> off the books. Stuff. Number five. Here's a uh, extremely Bobby Barathe. Right, like one For you. You know that shot of Anakin and Padme speaking in front of the Lars family hut on Tatooine before Anakin goes off to murder legions? Anakin's shadow on the hut during that conversation resembles Darth Vader's silhouette, specifically the outline of his iconic helmet. And given that, as we discussed in our Phantom Menace podcast, one of the key marketing images for the episode one film was the poster of Jake Lloyd, young Anakin, walking in front of the hut as his Darth Vader shadow cast out behind him. People thought that this was deliberate, that this had been designed and staged as such. But according to the DVD commentary, this was not a special effect or even intentional. It just happened to be a play of the light in that moment as they were filming it. You don't buy it? I find your lack of faith disturbing. Number six. Spoke earlier about the philosophically titillating line, I should think that you Jedi would have more respect for the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Mm. But what of that Besselisk who delivered that insight to Obi-Wan? It's clear to us that Dexter Jetster, known as Dex, or Dexy Jet to his besties. (laughs) Also, pull, get a shirt that fits, Dex. And pull up your pants. And pull up your pants. It's disgusting. You're <laughs> handling food. <laughs> Known as Dexy Jet to his besties and ready to sling you a hot home-cooked meal after fucking scratching his butt crack. <laughs> it's clear he knows his shit. And it's no surprise, according to both his official and Legends canon, Dex sold guns and smuggled, prospected and fought, and of course, made a mean Nerf burger. He gained exposure to Kamino saber darts mm-hmm. thanks to witnessing Paulus Massons use one and to cloning technology by discovering and exposing an illicit Crimson Dawn modification operation. Mm-hmm. Dex's varied life experiences and survival instincts led him to become a member of a group called the Erased, 
following the Jedi Purge, vanishing himself from the record in pursuit of a secret and safe underground existence. Fun fact for the Binge Mode HP fans listening to this, one of Dex's waitresses is named Hermione. Great stuff. Great, great. I'd love to see Hermione in the Star Wars universe. I would too. How big could Spew have gotten? Think about it. I don't know. It's a very unwoke world. <laughs> Number seven. The victim of that Camino and Saber Dart is Zam Wessel, a shape-shifting Claudite who trained with the Mabari and then shipped off to Denon to put her assassin's training to fruitful use and earn some coin as a bounty hunter. You get what's yours, girl. A changeling capable of assuming any humanoid form due to the genetic manipulation in Claudite history. So all of the Claudites are changelings, and that led to their oppression. Mm. She made Jango Fett's acquaintance in 32 BBY, according to Legends canon. And the two partnered often from then and maybe loved each other. Hello. That, of course, did not stop Jango from killing her <laughs> before he could cough up his identity. Tough stuff. The mission always comes first, if we've learned anything. But he did come to regret ending Zam's life, as did Boba, who had a fondness for her. Now, accidentally blowing up a decoy instead of your actual target, yeah. unleashing phallic centipedes that ultimately tip off the Jedi and allow them to follow you, then getting hunted by those Jedi into a bar and then killed by your own pal and maybe lover and definite partner might not seem like an impressive resume. But... Zam is something of a fan favorite, the object of a decent bit of internet clamoring for more Zam canon lore. Oh, yeah. That stems in part from a desire to explore the rich and tragic Claudite culture, yeah. and presumably in part from a desire to know what shape Zam took when she and Django fucked. This is like the whole Mystique X-Men thing. <laughs> He's probably like... Can you turn into me? He's such a narcissist. I know. He's got a million clones. Well, I'd like to just fuck myself at this point. <laughs> Boba, can you go in the little closet My son, area Boba. There? Uh, number eight. We often explore how little nuggets from the film find a second, more fully realized life elsewhere in Star Wars canon, where there's room to luxuriate in so many more stories and characters that can fit in two-ish hours. But Attack of the Clones contains one of the rare inverses, a character who originated elsewhere in the canon and then made her way into the primary films. Isla Secura, who might be more familiar to you as the blue Jedi standing behind Obi-Wan and Mace Windu in the arena in Geonosis, was not created by George Lucas for the film, but rather originated in the Legends comic series Star Wars Republic. Lucas reportedly so enjoyed the character, created by artist Jan Dersma and writer John Ostrander, that he incorporated her into the prequel trilogy. The Rudian Twi'lek Jedi General, who also plays a role in the Clone Wars TV series, is one of the Jedi executed in Revenge of the Sith under Darth Sidious's orders. Jason. Yeah. I'm haunted by the medals you should never have given to me. <laughs> <laughs> so is today's champion. Every episode of our movie discussions, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops, advanced the cause. Today... The winner of our Medal of Bravery is... <laughs> Chancellor Palpatine, our good friend Sheev. He's fucking crushing it. Not a lot of screen time, of course, but he's behind everything that happens in this movie, revealing the existence of the Clone Warriors to the Jedi at just the right time when they were the least likely to investigate further. 
Anakin is also obviously already smitten with Padme by this point. He has been from the moment they met in Phantom Menace, but Palpatine is the one who suggests that Obi-Wan and Anakin protect her, setting in motion the whole series of events that will lead to Anakin and Padme's eventual secret marriage and thus the ensuing events in episode three, Padme's pregnancy, the prophetic childbirth dreams that lead Anakin to the dark side. Chancellor also receives emergency powers thanks to his kind easily manipulated representative Jar Jar Binks. And while this is a loss for democracy across the galaxy, it's an empire-defining win for Palpy's true agenda and gives him control over an entire army that will in time become his empire's steel fist. And while he's receiving plans for the Death Star and gaining unchecked power and leading his future apprentice into his web, who's taking all the public heat? Dookie! That's who. Dookie, who somehow the Jedi had overlooked as being like a big deal. Or even no one, honestly. Because at the end, they're like, are we sure? Do we think so? (laughs) Do we believe him? That well-bearded face of Dooku is masking Palpatine's true agenda. Speaking of faces, it bears mentioning that this is the last movie in which Palpatine's face is not a scrotomesque ruin. (laughs) Ruin. For the entire film. So points for that as well. Shouts to Sheev. Also, like, anytime somebody starts putting on, like, dark robes that cover, like, this much of their their face over to the nose, be concerned. How could you have a single meeting in that office and not be like, hey, are you he's bad? the one? Are you bad? <laughs> it's him. Is he bad? Everything's either red or black. Yeah. He's in a giant throne. Is that guy bad? As a desk chair. I wonder if that guy's bad. <laughs> Billowing black velvet it robes. Is, it is with the utmost reluctance and hesitation and with utter humility that I accept this pronouncement of emergency powers upon my person. I love democracy. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> well, friends, truly wonderful. The mind of a podcast is. As we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, we hope that you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder, continue to explore the galaxy, and that you'll join us again next time for our character study on droids. Boop, 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 boop. Until then, remember, you're asking us to be rational. That is something we cannot do. Hi, it's me. Leave a message. Hey, Padme. Just, I wanted you to know when I said that you've grown more beautiful for a senator, what I really meant was just like as for as a person. You've grown more beautiful. Okay, bye. Hey, Padme, it's just me. I'm thinking about you. Just want you to know I can sense everything that's going on in your room. Hey, Padme, I just wanted to tell you that I'm thinking about you. I was, I'm on my way back from Tatooine now. That planet just absolutely sucks. The sand is everywhere. It just gets in everything. It's all scratchy and itchy, and it's terrible. It's not like you, which, you know, in Naboo, where everything is just, like, really soft and, and really smooth. And I think we need a, a strong leader that will just take over the entire republic and will bend everyone to his will. Okay, I love you. I'll talk to you later. Hey, Padme. Yeah, I'm at work right now. I just wanted to tell you that now that um, we're together, I'm in agony, and the closer I get to you, the worse it gets. Okay, I love you.